Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. We're here to talk about the DC books for the week of August 16th, 2022. Just a reminder, we're going to dive deep. We're going to get into spoilers. And I, I want to remind everybody of that because, man, this week, there are some big revelations. There are some really cool moments. There's some stuff I can't wait to, to talk about with uh, Rocky. Uh, we were just talking before we started recording, Batman One Bad Day. Something goes down at the end of Nightwing, which is super interesting. Uh, there's some stuff in the Harley Quinn in space storyline. So, yeah, this was a really, really solid week. Maybe not quite as good as things were a couple weeks ago. Um, but, yeah, there's a lot of great stuff this week. Uh, I, I, I really enjoyed this week's books. What about you, Rock? Uh, yeah, there's uh, – well, there's – you know, if I'm narrowing it down, there's uh, I got I got four big moments. I, I still think I still think it's batting under fifty percent this week for me still, but I, I got four solid mm. books that I really like. Uh, so I, I I think I suspect you you might enjoy more maybe some of them more more than I did, but uh, the ones I enjoyed I really enjoyed. So it was certainly better than last week. <laughs> was uh, well, but uh, yeah, but no, well, I'm looking forward to let talking. Let me see if I can guess. Yeah, let me see if I can guess the four: Batman, One Bad Day, The Flash, Nightwing, um, Batman the Night. Is that your fourth one? Uh, actually, uh, I I don't I don't mind Bat. I was gonna say World, actually World's Finest. Actually, you can make it okay. five. I didn't mind Batman the Night, so I'll probably go five. Okay, fair enough. You know. Curious to see, because uh, this happens. Sometimes there's books I don't necessarily like or you don't necessarily like, and then we hear the way the other person exactly kind of perceived them, and we go, oh, yeah, I didn't think of it that way. That was pretty good. So I'm getting that a lot with you and Jim when I review the indie comics. Uh, you know, what, the more we talk about it with what I talk about them with you, sometimes I like them a lot more at the end, and it's just one of yeah. those things. But uh, but that's good. That's yeah, what comics are about. They, they're meant to be shared and talked about, and, you know, let's have some fun. Yeah, exactly, 100%. So uh, we'll kick it off with the ending of the Aquaman and the Flash Void song storyline, book three, Elegy for Speed and Storm, written by Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing. The art is by Vasco Greg Gregev. I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, colors by Rain Barreto, uh, letters by Troy Petrie. Uh, man, I, I love the art. I, I always have to start with the art for this book because both the kind of the line work – the, the style, the aesthetic that Vasco uses, it's very traditionally super heroic. The rain Barreto colors are very bright, uh, which, you know, I always talk about using really bright colors kind of helps to give it a little bit of that Silver Age or classic superhero kind of feel. Uh, we both have talked in the past, and I've talked with some, some listeners online about the relationship between Arthur Curry and Barry Allen here and how that more than anything is what kind of sets this book outside of regular DC continuity. Uh, their, their friendship is, is a little different, a little more of an arrogant Arthur Curry, a little more of an arrogant Mira uh, for that matter. And kind of an interesting dynamic for their, for their friendship. So it's not that I mind the way the friendship is portrayed, but again, it's the thing that, that most feels out of place. I mean, not that I've read every single justice league story, uh, but it, I always, I never stopped to think about the fact that Arthur Curry and Barry wouldn't get along. They always seem very friendly uh, and, yeah. <laughs> you know, com comrades in arms. And that, that's certainly not the case here. Uh, but what's interesting is as this story in this issue plays out, they sort of uh, circumstances as they un unravel or as they um, kind of move along here, 
both Arthur and Barry are sort of for, forced to put themselves in the other person's shoes, you know, with a little bit of empathy. And that makes it where they, they realize that they're, they are friends. They do, they're more alike than different. They, they have certain challenges um, that are, you know, very similar. And so in the end, it ends up, uh, their friendship is reestablished, maybe even strengthened. So it ends up being, um, an interesting take on the relationship between Barry Allen and, and Arthur Curry, as far as the story itself, tons of action, which allowed Vasco to showcase that great art that I mentioned. But for me, the thing that I'll remember about the story, the most, um, not that the villain wasn't interesting, but in a way the villain ends up being a little bit more of a plot device than it first appeared. Um, and so I think the, the, the lasting part of the story that'll stick with me is that relationship between Aquaman and Flash here. But again, because it's not really the same relationship they have in the regular DCU, I, I don't know how long lasting this will be uh, for me. Um, one other thing that I noticed, and I don't know, I've seen this before on digital copies, but I don't know if it, if it, it, it hasn't always translated to print. Um, I don't know if, if it's purposeful from, from the artist or the, I mean, I'm assuming Vasco's working digitally, uh, but there's a scene where Aquaman is uh, jumping after they get inside the the ship, uh, and there's a big, what looks like a thumbprint in the background. Did you notice that, Rocky? Uh, uh, I think it's scroll up a few more pages. Apologies, I'm a. Uh... And I I've I've seen it specifically in X Men comics before, where it's almost like the inker. Yeah, that page right there. You see right above, like right in that blue space between his hand that's reaching out and the hand that's oh, holding yeah. the trident. It does look like a fingerprint, yeah. Yeah, that's got to be a thumbprint, right? And, you know, I, I just wonder, but I've seen artists in the past use fingerprints like that before to kind of add texture. Just thought it was interesting, something I noticed, but. Yeah, you got a good uh, eye there, Augie. I tell you what, I wouldn't have saw that. <laughs> yeah, I've, I noticed that on my art. You know, usually once I finish reading the book, I'll go back through and just do kind of an art review. So anyway, it ended up being a pretty solid book. Again, I'll remember it mostly for its art and and the unique portrayal of the relationship between um, Arthur and, and Barry more than anything. What did you think? Uh, this was uh, this was a very much a, a decompressed story. I'll tell you that much. This this I mean, there is I guess there's 46 pages here digitally. So probably I'm guessing 39 or 44 maybe 40 pages of story here in this third volume. And a good chunk of this wasn't necessary to finish the story, but we get, even at the end, we got like no less than five, five or six double page spreads where they're just showing uh, where, where Lansing and Kelling are just scripting, you know, uh, Flash and Aquaman sort of reflecting on the world after they've saved it and how majestic the superheroes are. And, and, and the, the highlight of this story from the very beginning has been the relationship between Arthur Curry and, uh, Barry Allen and frankly they don't have much of a relationship and in fact it was premised upon betrayal uh, Arthur Curry was using uh, uh, Barry Allen in order to gain access to the speed force to to build uh, these sh uh, uh, Atlantean ships that could travel in space and uh, and that was basically the uh, that's one thing that Barry Allen felt that he, he was betrayed and that he couldn't get over but they had to come together in order to win the day here and they they do so. I, I think, frankly, in 
in spectacular fashion, Arthur Curry has a very interesting conversation with with the with the aliens, with the voids, and the song. and And I think the central conceit is that you know these two very on the surface, I can't imagine more different heroes than the Flash and Aquaman, and how they come together and have their own kind of dare I say it song themselves. <laughs> they're for you know they're the song they put together in defeating the enemies. It's it's pretty cool and. Uh, I, I enjoyed the story, and this was a character-based story, and this was a story of about relationships between Arthur and Mira, about between Barry and Iris, and I thought it worked. Uh, I thought it worked quite well, and and at the end, I mean, again, beautiful art. Like I mean, you, you mentioned it. I mean, just really gorgeous art, and and again, a whole series of double-page spreads, one after the other, just absolutely gorgeous, showing highlighting the heroes fighting bad guys all over the globe i mean so it's, it's quite quite good and so it's not even though this is void this void song has to do with both barry and arthur flash and aquaman it does highlight in this final issue at least uh the, the all the members of the justice league coming back and overall i quite like this story I, I found personally on twitter a lot of readers i thought were giving this series a hard time i and, I, and that surprised me because i've really you know i've I, I've enjoyed this, and I have a brand new respect. I, I hope that this redefines the relationship between Barry Allen and Arthur Curry because I don't think it's that far out of sync with the mainstream continuity. I kind of like it because, frankly, it elevates Arthur Curry a little bit more in my eyes. And Barry Allen is, has always been sort of a kind of a boring kind of guy. I've never liked him anyway. I'm a Wally West fan, so I actually like Barry in this story more after reading it than I ever have before, if I'm brutally honest. But. Yeah, I, I I agree, and and you know, I, when I was talking about him, focus a lot on on that relationship between Barry and Arthur. But you're right; it it does it, it focuses not just on them, but when the rest of the Justice League come back, I do like that. Um, Colin and Jackson, fo- you know, focus on a little more than the kind of the professional relationship of these heroes. I mean, they really are friends. You know, despite I mean, maybe Batman's the one that you know kind of gives people a, a hard time and kind of wants to be all business, but, you know, even he, you know, softens a little bit and that it is a great scene when Arthur's like, uh, you know, talking about how much Barry does and he, you know, he needs some time off. Um, so yeah, it, it, it ended up being a really great story. Yeah. And the at end. the end, at the end, Arthur Curry Aquaman stands up for Barry cause he wants to have a break, but you know, Batman and the rest of the league want, want a rundown on what happened. And Aquaman said, stands up and says, hey, this guy's been working his ass off. Let him go home to his wife. And uh, yeah. so it was good. I also want to give a shout out to the artistic design. I love the costume, this new costume for this, the armor that Aquaman is wearing in Flash. I think they look particularly awesome. I, I just I, I just love it. I, I are, Aesthetically, I, I love the look. Uh, Aquaman's new sort of the, the, the visuals, the sort of armored, half armored shoulder, metal shoulder pad costume that he's wearing or whatever the hell it is it looks pretty cool i like the design so the design work here i like as well it makes it stand out too so i actually hope i see this design for for aquaman more in the future to be honest yeah exactly uh all right well let's move on we have batman the night number eight of ten uh this is written by chip sadarsky art is by carmen a dijon domenico colors by ivan placencia lettered by pat barroso a uh, really solid issue. I'm going to be sad to see this series end, if I'm being honest. It's, it's been so good. Not We've talked before about not necessarily what we expected, more intimate story as opposed to this you know, big, big broad overview of Bruce traveling around. Uh, 
you know, learning the various skills that it's going to take him to become Batman. Uh, it's It's been a much more emotional story. And as I said, a much more intimate story than I expected. Uh, what did you think of this issue? Uh, well, before I get to this issue, I wasn't here. Uh, we had a little tornado run through my city when when you reviewed by yourself the night number seven, Batman the night number seven. And it was my favorite issue so far with Zatanna. I thought it was fantastic. Oh, uh, yeah. I, just, I, I absolutely love that. I, I thought it was one of my best. I think it's one of the best. It was, the, in my view, just a quick note. I just feel compelled to say something about it because uh, I thought it didn't. Sardaski had did an excellent job, the best job I've ever seen of, of explaining, at least in my mind, in my own headcanon, why Batman and magic have never really gotten along very well. The whole idea that Batman is, is very, it's very difficult for Batman to sort of let go because he's so obsessed uh, and because he's got that darkness and that obsession within him to fight crime and it makes it difficult for him to truly be a master of magic. And uh, I, I like the way that was explored there and uh, throughout that entire story. And I think I think it just it, it just really did a, a really good job, and but I had, would have more to say about it, but that 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 was then. But going into this one, uh, in this particular issue, uh, this is uh, Bruce Wayne. In 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 this issue, Bruce Wayne continues his training, and as he's going through, he's going through training in various cities through through Metropolis. He ends up being trained by this spider, this uh, sky spider, in. in uh, in Metropolis and, uh, or pardon me, in, in, I don't know, in Shangri-La or someplace or someplace in Europe uh, because they're speaking Shanganese. And then he, he ends up in being trained at some place in, in Metropolis and Morocco. And, and he believes that Anton is always one step ahead, ahead of him. And, and that Anton is even going so far as to kill certain masters of certain things. And he continues to be very disappointed in, in his best friend, uh, Bruce Wayne. What, what under, the character work that uh, I think really comes into play in this issue and that Sardaski does so well is that Bruce Wayne is, you know, he's getting better and better. And he, but he, he wants to, he wants to, uh, he wants to train his mind he wants to actually be more cold-hearted he because he he feels in many ways he feels almost like at the beginning that maybe his thinking is is a weakness and that's why he ends up finding himself in front of this um he goes to um uh what's the name of the uh the, the guy that trains him in this issue this uh, daniel captio uh, who's yeah. the smartest man in the world and uh, he goes to this guy he ends up going to the uh some you know, uh, he wants his he wants his mind to be ready, and to he wants to become cold and terrifying because he wants to, of course, uh, he, that's what he wants to be to fight the criminal element. And this uh, Daniel Captio is the smartest man, uh, and he knows how to train your body. He knows how to, you know, through your mind, being able to get your body to do what it wants and to trick your body into doing certain things. And he's a really good teacher. But he's also a little bit cold-hearted, and he kind of sees, yeah, and he can see the struggle that Bruce Wayne is going through. And ultimately, what I love about the issue is that uh, it ends up that one of Ra's al Ghul's underlings, this Harris, Harris Zuma, called the Still, ends up looking for Bruce Wayne, and he ends up defeating Anton. Anton shows up at, at uh, uh, Daniel's doorstep, Daniel Captio's doorstep, and Right, you know, we've been thinking for for the last few issues that that Anton has been this bad guy that he's been doing all these, you know, f one step ahead of Bruce Wayne and potentially killing all these people, and that he's really lost his way. And there's some doubt now. It's like you know, Anton was actually trying to was actually trying to follow Bruce Wayne and trying to follow Bruce and actually protect him, and he fought this 
Harris Zuma, but ended up getting defeated. And this this issue ends sort of culminates with, you know, Bruce Wayne, you know, seeing Anton all bloody and on the ground arriving and Anton warning him. And then he has his battle against Harris Zuma. He defeats her, uh, this Zuma character, the still, only to have the still tell him, tell him that, you know, look, I lied to you, you know, I, you know, or rather, uh, clearly Daniel Captio lied to him because Daniel, uh, uh, Mr. Captio character, he was lying to Bruce, telling him that he had killed his family, killed his friends, that Alfred was dead. And, but it was all part of a psychological game that Captio was doing to just try to get into the head of Bruce Wayne, to manipulate him, to test him, to see how far he could go, to test his mental uh, boundaries. And could he, could, could he fight and focus even through all that kind of stress and, 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 exp- and, upon feeling that kind of loss and and he he's he succeeds rather spectacularly bruce wayne manages not only to defeat uh, the still but he actually chooses not to kill him uh something which uh you know it, that's you can that's the sign to us readers that this is he's slowly he's very close to becoming the batman that we that we know him to be someone who is has the capacity to kill but always when he's on that precipice has the ability to pull himself back and choose not to kill. And it ends with an invitation by the still to invite him to meet Ra's al Ghul, uh, which of course uh, is undoubtedly going to be the, the bigger chapter in, in Batman's, in, in, in Bruce Wayne's training that will ultimately lead him to become the Batman. And in Ra's al Ghul's eyes, the next chosen one. And so I really enjoyed this. I like, I thought the, I thought the art was fantastic. I thought the action sequences were great. I really like the rapport. I love the dialogue between Daniel Captio and Bruce Wayne. The way there was there was like a verbal tug of war back and forth, and the and the just just these were these are very powerful individuals that were at the top of their game, and to have it all come together like this, especially when you know that we've had we've seen we've had some really good stories from issue one, uh, from Zatanna to the. Uh, I can't. I, I apologize. I can't remember all the names of these, <laughs> all, all the ones that trained him. But all, there was a point. There was a, each issue could be read independent of the other, and you could still get something out of the each issue, and you could see Bruce Wayne uh, get get better and better. So, uh, what do you think? Yeah, I really enjoyed it on a lot of levels. I mean, first of all, the, the, the this idea, this philosophy that Captio has that you know, we're all insignificant, nothing matters, everything matters. Uh, you know, we've certainly used that phrase to talk about DC current continuity and how they're um, trying to say every story matters. So I thought that was a little meta. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm not sure that Zdarsky's doing it on, on purpose, but it still was interesting coming in the, the context that it does. Also, this idea that uh, Captio is talking about not being able to live amongst, you know, other people and then still be above them and sort of uh, analyze them. I thought that was interesting as well. And then of course, in the end we find out he's sort of manipulating um, Bruce and not necessarily in a malevolent way, but just in a, in a way uh, he's so much of a slave to his curiosity and his thirst for knowledge and his thirst to, you know, obtain knowledge and, and watch individuals and certainly Bruce Wayne is somebody that he wants to to watch as he you know moves through his life because he's so fascinating to uh, Captio. So um, I, I thought that was really interesting. Th- this whole idea of you know mind over matter in terms of not allowing yourself to feel pain and whatever it certainly adds to the mystique. And you know it's something that 
Batman's been able to do over, over time. And certainly with the power creep we've talked about before, uh, you kind of wonder how he learned that or whatever. So I appreciate just in terms of, you know, building the story and adding to the mythos of, of Bruce and his journey and whatnot. Zdarsky's doing a really good job on that level. Also, we, you know, we did speculate on this Anton before and if he was actually the ghost maker or not. And as the story has played out, uh, it turns out, yes, he, he, he is the ghost maker, uh, that's, you know, in the current Batman continuity. And so I, I also like that Zdarsky is weaving that back in because obviously this is a character that, uh, James Tynan only created a few years ago, but has roots back, you know, retro continuity, uh, retcon as it's referred to, uh, has roots all the way back in, in Bruce's earliest beginnings of, of training. And we see that here. So I appreciate that as well. Um, if anything, I think you had mentioned it you know, wondering if it was him. And I, I was like, yeah, wondering as well. But the thing that threw us off was the fact that he, you know, he was so bloodthirsty and, you know, he was apparently trying to kill Bruce. And that's certainly not the relationship he has with Ghostmaker now. And then we find out in this issue, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't Anton at all. Like you mentioned, it's, it's Raz al Ghul, this still character who's, uh, you know, working on behalf of Raz al Ghul. So um, yeah, I thought this was a fantastic issue. Um, I thought that the Carmine D. John Domenico art, it's been very solid throughout. You know, he's not my favorite style of artist because his style is a little bit looser than I, um, that I typically prefer, but he has a lot of emotion in his art because it is a looser style. And that certainly works with this idea of there, there's an aspect to this younger Bruce Wayne where he's, he's sort of on the edge of out of control, you know? Um, and it, that, that, is very apparent in this story and, and the whole reason he's, you know, searching out this Capteo person. He's just not sure if he can do this, right? The whole point is to, to be trained to control his emotions. And I, again, I really like that aspect of the story. And Capteo even says, yeah, you came to me asking to learn how to be a sociopath, basically to isolate your, uh, your emotions. And I'm, I'm fascinated either way. If you go that direction, what's going to happen? Or if you go the other way, uh, which is obviously the way we know he, he uh, that Bruce eventually goes in, in terms of using that anger, using that loss of his parents, using that trauma to fuel himself uh, for his never-ending war against criminals. So, you know, I, I'm kind of in the camp of Capteo, you know, in terms of that's a fascinating person. Either way, either, you know, if Bruce had gone the sociopath way and suppressed his emotions, could make the argument he might have been even more successful um, but maybe, maybe that's bad for the villains because he probably would have been killing him, taking a more logical clinical approach, right? You know, with that revolving door, and we'll talk more about that later. Um, but anyway, I, I, it's a fant- it's a fantastic job, Zadarsky, and this is going back to talking about Zadarsky's first issue of the regular series, one twenty five. Well, I was a little underwhelmed by it because when he writes Bruce here, it is so emotional. And that, that first issue lacked uh, a bit of emotion for me. But 126 uh, kind of started bringing it back. So we'll see uh, where that continues to go. But yeah, I'm, I'm very impressed with this night series. And for some reason, I was thinking it was only eight issues. And when I saw the end where it said to be continued, uh, I was like, oh, they're going to do a second series. But then I went and double checked. I'm like, oh, no, it's 10. Yeah. It's 10 issues, which still, like you know we said at the very beginning, doesn't feel like enough. And um I don't know. I almost would like to see this continue. Obviously we have two more issues. I don't know how it's going to wrap up, but um, I, I like 
Zdarsky telling Batman stories in this era. Yeah. I like I, I like any story with Batman in in his training era cuz it's there's an infinite number of stories to be told in that regard but it's this is the first time in at least in my memory anyway uh which is usually pretty bad but <laughs> but it's the first time where we're getting a consistent set of stories well frankly 10 10 issues where from from the same writer so we're going to have a unified theme and 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 you you kind of touched upon an aspect of that I really like and that is this is a Bruce Wayne who does have a connection to his emotions and and in a sense he wants to detach from them but he he slowly comes to realize particularly in this issue that his emotions and his love is actually his strength and cuz he was i think comparing himself to Anton and maybe others thinking that he had to be dark or cold or shut off from the world in order to be effective but he i think he's realizing that he doesn't have to be that way and i think that's what i sort of like about this and why i also like the zatanna issue last issue and issue uh, 7 so all in all like i really i really like this progression of stories i'm really curious to see where how it ends yeah i i am as well uh all right up next we have oh crap i just closed it it's a uh, it's Black Adam issue number three. This was written by Christopher Priest. Rafa Sandoval uh, is the artist. And sorry, I'm opening it back up um, so I can get the full credits. Uh, this is, I mean, you got to say one thing about Christopher Priest. He's very consistent in his storytelling style. I know his storytelling style is not for everybody, um, but it's, and I don't fault priest at all for this but I, I think you know dc is trying so hard to really kind of up the profile of black adam because they have the movie coming and i think it's it causes a little bit of confusion i think even for longtime readers so uh matt herms does the colors troy petrie is on the letters um and and what i mean by causing some confusion it, it used to be there was only one version of black adam and nobody ever thought anything of it Right. That's just the way that it was. And then recently with Future State and some of the other stories going uh, around, all of a sudden it's like there's you know, a bunch of different versions of Black Adam. So maybe it goes back to what we were saying earlier uh, about DC Comics wanting to have its cake and eat it too. My understanding is it was always Tet Adam, right? And now in this story they're referring to as Theo – and yeah. even with this Malik White, who is supposedly a descendant of Black Adam and is given the power of Black Adam when Black Adam died last issue. Um, and then they bring him back in this issue. And we also get some scenes of the afterlife. And it, I I confess to being a little bit confused. Like, Well, I will what? say it's based on the New 52. It's based on the actual New 52 origin of Black Adam. That's what he's actually Okay, raising. so the one – Because when he's having it, when he's having visions of his nephew that he betrayed to become Black Adam, that's the New 52 origin of Black Adam. And that's the – that's the, when he, when he's been having memories in, like in, the, in the previous issues about that and what, the, these visions that he has, this nefarious force that appears to be like his – I guess his nephew. It's all it's related to that particular origin, and and one of. So the, are you talking about the, the fifty-two weekly series? Uh, n- n- no, I'm talking about the. Uh, uh, I'm talking about the new fifty-two era. What like like Black Adam's origin? It was partly addressed in the fifty-two series, but his his origins. His origin in 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 that era of the the JSA and that new the new fifty-two era. It was. 
it was a slightly different origin than than you know than now. Was so, that, so were those the ones that were the? I, I'm trying to. Do you remember where that was? Like, was that the? Just, they were Justice League backups. New Fifty Two Justice League backups. Uh, I'm I'm trying. To, just wondering. I, I, I mean, obviously, I haven't read it, so I, I'm just I'm missing some context for this story. Yeah, no, I, I, if you you want this, um, you want the context of the specific comics. I'd have to look that up for you, but I, yeah. I just know from from talking to others and what have you. And my um, my recollection was sort of like because I wasn't sure, and so when I look when I looked it up, and then when I spoke to others, it was like, oh, okay, that makes more sense because I didn't know because in the early issues, sir, Black Adam was having. It looked like he was, you know, his nephew was was making him feel guilty, and he he looked like Black Adam had betrayed his nephew and stole the the the, the powers of Shazam, and all that was related to that's that's his old that's his that New Fifty Two era of of an origin, and that's and Christopher Priest never really never really told anybody what era he was working with. He just sort of went with that, and that's sort of a little bit contradictory to you know again, it's not a big deal, but. There, there is some disjointedness here, especially since we got like Teddy, like the 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 yeah, in the Teen Titans Academy, and and uh, and then we got a slightly different than with uh, even Jeff Johns in the in the backup with uh, Shazam and the backup of the Justice League in the New Fifty Two. Yeah, and even and what's going on right now in yeah in Dark Crisis, you know, with what he's doing, saying ah, the, yeah. this Justice League that John Kent put together is garbage. I don't want to have anything to do with him, and he goes off on his own. Yeah. So yeah, it's just and in fact I that's mean, the backup. It. That's the Black Adam origin. Is the backup to the New Fifty Two Justice League. That's what the origin yeah. of Black Adam is. I just finished talking so it, about. I just I just answered my own question. Yeah. So yeah, it's again like I think disjointed is a is a good word to use. Um, and I get it. Like you're trying to raise his profile. You're trying to have him in a, a lot of different places. But man, you you need a little bit of consistency. Um, and I will say that you know Black Adam is maybe never had that much consistency because he has had different iterations over the years. And the other aspect of that you go to is, you know, the fact that he's even on the justice league in the first place. Like if you go back to his earliest times when he's showing up in the faucet comics, he's evil, he's bad. Um, and in a way in this issue, priest gets a little meta with that because even um, his, you know, supposed friend here, the guy that works for the state department, blasting Yiggle uh, or Weigel, um, you know, even he's like, uh, yeah, the relationship's complicated. You know, he was my friend. And then Malik's like, well, maybe we can bring him back. Wait, are you sure you want to bring him back? He's Dracula. He's, he's evil. You know, and it's like, well, which is it? You say he's your friend, like you miss him and you want him back, but then you don't want him back. So yeah, it's, um, it's a little contradictory in a way. Um, but I will say Christopher Priest is the right writer to be, uh, writing this. And I think it'll all come together in the end. Uh, the other thing that I can't help, but be reminded of is priest black Panther run, right? Which the movie's based on, especially when you talk about the um, Martin Freeman character, what, what's his, do you, do you recall his name uh, in the MCU? I know the actor's name is Martin Freeman, uh, uh, but he, he plays the no. plays like the state state department guy who's sort of the POV character. Um, to uh, to T'Challa, um, oh, I'm no, looking I... it up. Right now. <laughs> I'm looking it up right now, but uh, but yeah, I, I can't help but feel like in a little bit of a way, um, Reese is repeating himself because you know he, he, here we go with this you know ruler uh, of you know uh, 
a technologically, well, not nowhere near as technologically advanced as Wakanda, but still the ruler of a small country. And, you know, he, he has this, you know, white guy who's sort of a small sidekick in a way. Everett K. Ross is his name, Black Panther. Um, so yeah, a little bit of a, of a repeat from, um, from Christopher Priest. So, uh, this is a complicated story. Again, it's, it's not anything that's surprising given who's writing it. He, de- Christopher Priest definitely has a, a style, but yeah, I, I guess I need, just need to go and brush up on my Black Adam, um, well, more recent history. Uh, and, and all that being said, this is still an enjoyable comic and I, I think it'll all tie up in the end. I mean, I, I sort of feel, you know, three issues in to this, I feel sort of the same way I f- felt when I was reading his, uh, Christopher Priest's Deathstroke run. Um, but it pays off. Like the longer you read it, the more that it pays off. Once the little seeds that he plants along the way start bearing fruit. What did you think? Well, uh, I didn't. I didn't mind this. I had to read this twice again, and I find myself reading every comic I read. I'm reading twice nowadays. <laughs> but that, that's a good thing. I, I, I actually enjoyed it. I, I, did, I didn't mind it. It was. Uh, uh, this is. Black Adam's in a coma. He's supposed to basically be dead. And he, Black Adam even thought he had died because he'd given his power to Malak, his descendant, who became White Adam. And Malak, but then, uh, is a pretty good uh, student, medical student doctor. And he uses, he figures, he tries using the Shazam lightning to actually, you know, basically give... Uh, give Black Adam's heart a jolt because he wisely determines that, well, maybe if I can't uh, save Teth Adam's life, maybe I can save, I can, I can bring Black Adam out of him. And Black Adam is, is actually in the, uh, the Mesotopian underworld called Urkala, which is sort of like Val. Well, I guess it's like the, the, it's like sort of like Hades, but it's like Urkala. It's the Mesotopian underworld where he confronts Ishtar and Eri, who are uh, basically the goddesses of, of the dead, I'm oversimplifying it. I had to Google some of this stuff because I don't know who these Egyptian goddesses are. And these are different goddesses than we we normally have seen in Black Adam's past. So Christopher Priest is adding different gods here, as far as I'm aware, uh, to sort of, you know, upset the apple cart a little bit. And Sargon of Akkad, he ends up battling this guy named Sargon. And uh, like I say, there's a lot of this stuff is, t- you know, a lot of great visuals, a lot of battle is taking place. Uh, and ultimately, uh, Black Adam is ultimately resurrected because uh, because of the efforts made by Malik. So Black Adam's ultimate uh, defeat of of Sargon it coincides, or or rather, I should uh, put it another way. Yeah, it's his defeat. It, it's his defeat of Sargon that coincides with him being coming out of his coma. Uh, where he finds himself in the hospital uh, beside uh, beside Malik, who is, uh, you know, so they're they're both, you know, so this issue ends with basically the entire issue took place in Black Adam's head while Malik was operating on him, essentially. And so, but, but and all we really need to know is that now we've got some Egyptian gods and goddesses that are now going to be part of Black Adam's lore. And that may be an attempt by Christopher Priest to further distinguish Black Adam from the wizard and the gods that make up Shazam in Billy Batson's universe. That would be my guess. So it's, it's not bad, but you know, it does, it probably takes a couple of reads to really get into it. Yeah. Who do you think that Baron character is? I didn't recognize him. That Baron. Yeah. Isn't that what black or, or what, um, 
Billy says at the end when the guy, you know, he's, he's asking him for the, for, uh, oh, never mind. I'm thinking oh, of, I'm thinking of the next book we're going to talk. Oh, okay. is it the next book? <laughs> okay. Uh, which one is it that Billy shows up? Oh, I'm thinking of. Billy doesn't Bandit? show up here. Yeah, there, he should. He shows up in another book at the end. Yeah, it's D, I think it's DC Vampires, the second issue, <laughs> right at the end. Right? Yeah, that's who I was thinking about. All right. Yeah. yeah anyway, right. moving on. Okay. Um, Dark Crisis, Young Justice, number three. I do have you know a question about who the big bad might be in this one, if you have any theories. There's only one person that comes to mind for me, and I'm not sure – because obviously this ties into Dark Crisis. It's called Dark Crisis, Young Justice. Um, but man, I'm 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 kind of at a loss. There's only one person I can think of that it could be, but I don't feel like I'm right. Anyway, written by Megan Fitzmartin, uh, Laura Bragos, the artist, Luis Guerrero on colors, Pat Brosso on letters, the Trinity of Trauma. What do you think of this? Uh, well, first I will say this: that Megan Fitzmartin is doing her best. Uh, it's clear that she has familiarized herself with the general history of all the characters. And what this really feels like to me, uh, this feels like a world without a Teen Titans. You know how we're getting the world without a Justice League and the Justice League members are all in there like their dream world controlled by Pariah. This actually feels like these Teen Titans, that all these ki- all the members of Young Justice uh, are in the sort of like their dream world from the 90s. Uh, but it's not Pariah that's controlling it. It's somebody else that we don't know. And um, I, you know, I, it's, it's actually leaked in future solicit. So I've, I've read future solicit. So I know, I know who it is. I'm not going to spoil it, but it, it makes sense. Um, regardless, if this feels, um, what, what Fitzmartin is trying to do here, Megan is trying to have it so that all these characters have some fun while they're trying to figure out what the hell's going on. And it's clear that this, whoever is controlling things, their, their lieutenant or their underling is this wonder girl, this, this wonder girl of this world is trying to get them to accept this world. You know, that you, you, you fit in here. I mean, you, you fit in better in this world that you're on now than you do in your other one. So stay here. And meanwhile, the, the entire issue, even like last issue, it's Impulse and, and Super and, and Connor and Tim Drake. They're all talking to each other. And, and at different times, each one of them seems to take turns being the voice of reason. I find that Impulse, for the most part, seems to know that this isn't right. We got to go here. Nothing feels right here. And then Connor will have to be the voice of reason. And then, and then, then Tim will. And, and meanwhile, they're, you know, different villains that they've confronted and, and have traumatized them in the past, like Deathstroke uh, traumatized Impulse at one point by shooting him in the ankle. And then uh, Boomer, Ca- Captain Boomerang was there and and uh, along with Slade, Slade Wilson, Deathstroke, and I'm, I'm missing one here, uh, Lex Luthor uh, confronting Connor Kent. And it's obvious to the reader and it's obvious to the characters that this is wonky. And... My one criticism is that I, I frankly, I haven't had fun. Uh, I, I missed the review of the second issue. I really didn't like the second issue. I don't like this third issue. The only issue I liked was the first issue because I thought it was going to be more wonky and fun throughout, and it hasn't been that. This has been, I think, a vain attempt at it. And I say that respecting what I think Megan Fitzmartin has is, is been trying to do. And 
by the way, she she has my full props. I I it's I don't know how on earth you would try to make sense of the Young Justice continuity and make a good story out of it. I personally would have taken a different approach and just had a new members of Young Justice or or just had a past story uh, myself. But it is what it is. I know what I don't like, I, and I didn't like what Bendis did, where he crammed all them in and didn't care about continuity. At least with Fitzmartin, she's at least attempting some semblance of continuity and acknowledging everything. But I don't, I don't find much meat for a story here. So somebody's manipulating them, but to what end? And since I kind of know what's going on, I'm not, I'm not really in this for the long haul, to be honest with you. Uh, but I, I do give her props for a for effort. It's just not resonating with me. I like the, although I, I you know, I, I love the first issue, but this went in a direction that I, I really, I'm not a big fan of. But uh, what do you think? Well, I mean, I look at it; it's got to tie into Dark Crisis, so I can kind of understand why it doesn't have the feel that the old Young Justice book did. You know, it's a little bit it takes itself a little more seriously, uh, and, and I don't have the history with the old. Uh, or first Young Justice title that you do, so maybe that's why um, you say you, you you know know who the big bad is. My guess is Mixius Pitalik, but I, I don't know how that would tie into uh, Dark Crisis. So could I, it I be Pariah? I, like, I think this is false advertising. I'll be straight up and say it. I don't think this has anything to do with Dark Crisis, but um, you know, uh, uh, other than the fact that. This all came about because they're mourning the supposed loss of the Justice League. I mean, well, sure, that's a tenuous connection. Yeah. To me, that's like the red yeah. skies of the original crisis. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. I, yeah. And and the argument could be made that you know the whole entire Justice League seventy five death of the Justice League, whatever. Yeah, is was false advertising as well. I mean, we won't get too sure. far into it, but <laughs> we'll I mean, get, that's a rabbit hole we don't want to go down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And the fact that no, you know. Even when it's Death of Superman, nobody really believes, especially now. You know, Death of Superman was what thirty years ago now. Actually, thirty years this year. Yeah, um, nineteen ninety-two. That's how old uh, we are, Jace. We're getting old. Yeah, I know. God, I don't <laughs> want to think about that. But, but my point being that, yeah, no, nobody, everybody knows. Especially now, comics are the center of pop culture and billion-dollar movies or whatever. You're not going to kill your golden goose. You're not going to kill Superman. You're not going to kill Batman. You know, regardless of whatever storyline. So you're not going to kill the justice league, you know, at this point, I mean, Jonathan Hickman may have it, you know, the most closely to accurate with making the X-Men immortal. Cause these characters are immortal. <laughs> Let's face it. You know, you can kill them. They're going to keep coming back, like turning up like a bad penny or keep coming back like cockroaches or, or whatever. So I don't know who this is uh, in terms of big, bad. Um, I, I say mix his piddle Cause you know, this is a whole reality that exists. Um, I agree with you 100% that it feels wonky. I, I like a lot of what Fitz Martin is doing here, especially with Impulse. Uh, you know, Bart is not being taken seriously. And so, you know, th that resonates with me because it feels um, very accurate with how he's been portrayed over the years. And, you know, he's always been portrayed as sort of this goofy, uh, you know, comedic relief, uh, but not even being self and aware enough to know. And, you know, she's exploring some of those ideas. So I like that aspect of it. Um, but I mean, 
they're a problem. I mean, what, so why does Connor look like he looks, <laughs> you know, that's the first thing. Like he doesn't wear the leather jacket anymore. He doesn't even have this haircut when we see him in regular continuity. So I get that it's, you know, trying to be a bit of a throwback. Um, but it's a little more problematic to me of the, this wonky continuity that, that DC has right now where, man, I don't know how anything fits together. There's no editorial oversight in terms of, Hey, this is what this character looks like now. You know, maybe it's because it's a different reality. They're looking like they used to look and it's a callback or whatever. Like I get that, but Mm. um, you know, I've said before, as much as this dark crisis is going to last until the end of the year, I, I would hope that if there's anything that comes out of it, it's just a little, you know, and again, it's a cliche or whatever, but just, just clean it up a little bit. I just want a little bit of consistency, you know, to, cause everything right now is so wildly inconsistent, right? Like we, we've talked about the justice league being dead, you know, quote unquote, really they're just missing. They're in these happiness prisons, but yet every single one of their comics, whether it's Batman or Wonder Woman or Superman, they're all still coming out. They're all still coming out month after month. They're not missing, you know, like, so, I mean, Superman is not even on earth. He's on war world. Yeah. Like it, 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 the continuity has never (laughs) like, well, unfortunately it's an editor. It's an editorial thing that you you either, and you know, the, the genie was out of the bottle uh, quite a while ago and they were bound to these stories and it was kind of wonky. And Williamson is, clearly been doing in many ways his own thing for the longest time and uh it's uh the only thing we can hope for is after dark crisis hopefully there'll be some indication that there's going to be more of a you know more of a general just tighten tighten it up yeah like i think i think about like the last time the dc was or the last think about the last few times where dc has really been successful in terms of sales right i would say rebirth before that was when the new 52 first launched and before that was probably right around Infinite Crisis, yeah. right? With the 52, you know, and coming out of that, the 52 weekly series or whatever. You look at those three eras, the con- what do they have all in common? The continuity was very tight. Everything was well-planned. You can make an argument whether it was well-executed or not and whether Dan Didio had a heavy hand or not, but you, you can't argue that the continuity wasn't really tight. And I get it. Like for the new 52, the continuity went off the rails really quickly because, you know, they only planned ahead so many issues. And then after, you know, it was problematic of the reboot and what should count and whatnot. And then before you knew it, you had, well, how could Batman have had like four different Robins within five years? And yeah, it goes off the rails really quickly. But when you read like the first six months of new 52, there weren't continuity glitches, you know, not like that, not where, you know, this person showing up looking one way in one book and in another book is completely different. You didn't have, you just didn't have that. It just didn't happen. Um, same thing with rebirth, same thing with, uh, infinite crisis era. So let's get back to that. I mean, that's one of the things that D- us DC fans love the most about it. And I, it's just, it's been so, so bad for so long. Um, yeah. kind of tired of it, to be honest with you. So anyway, let's move on. Uh, up next we have Batman Superman world's finest issue. Number six, this is from writer Mark Wade. Travis Moore is the artist. Tamara Bonvillon does the colors. Aditya Bidikar on letters. This is a standalone. It sort of ties into what was going on with the previous storyline uh, with the demon Nezha. And we saw that the Dick Grayson Robin, while traveling through time, got separated from Supergirl and, and lost. Um, so we find out that he's 
you know, back in the past, he, he leaves a message and uh, Superman and Batman figure out what era he's in. I don't think we're ever given uh, 1892 is the year uh, and he's become part of this traveling circus. Um, and so it plays into sort of the origins of Dick Grayson and how he grew up. So that all works really, really well. I like the feel of the story more necessarily than the, the pacing or the specific character moments or story beats that happen in the story. Cause it does harken back to, um, you know, a previous era of comics where you used to have one and done stories. Yeah. Like it you can really pick good. this book. You, yeah. You could pick this issue up and read it yeah. and enjoy it. And you know, it works wonderfully completely on its own. You don't need anything else. You don't actually need to read the previous five issues, uh, the previous five issue story arc to know what's going on. They give you everything you need to know and it stands on its own and it's, it's a lot of fun. So, you know, it, it is, this is Mark Wade. Obviously he's read hundreds, if not thousands of those types of stories, uh, you know, when he was growing up reading comics. And so not, not surprising, but I still appreciate that he, that he did this and it does stand on its own. And it's a very, uh, it's a very good story in terms of, you know, character of who Dick Grayson is and reminding us, you know, how much he cares about his origins and uh, how quickly he can figure things out, uh, you know, despite the fact that he's trapped over a hundred years in the past, 150 years in the past almost. Um, so I, I, I enjoyed a lot of the little um, smaller parts of the story that Wade puts in here. I mean, this all made sense. Throwback to Superman and his original costume, like, a lot of people wonder, what well, why does Superman have his underwear on the outside of his costume? Well, it's a throwback to the circus strongmen who didn't wear anything but just those briefs, right? <laughs> the rest of their bodies were unclothed to show off their massive muscles. Um, that's where that that that's why he has the un quote unquote underwear on the outside. Uh, and here he actually gets to be a circus strongman, even if only for a few pages. So uh, little things like that that really help sell this story. And uh, I thought the art by Travis Moore and the colors by Tamara Bonvillon were excellent as well. So yeah, this was a this was a fun story. This World's Finest series is really firing on all cylinders. What do you think, Rob? Yeah, I agree. Uh, Mark Way just absolutely nailed it. Uh, he he just pr- he he proved in the previous uh, previous uh, five issues that he could tell a, a fantastic story arc with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh, and that ended with Robin being lost in time, Supergirl feeling guilty, and. Robin, Dick Grayson, being smart enough to leave a message in, in time uh, because he's he's back in time. He, he ends up in Corto Maltese in 1892 at a, with a circus. This this one-shot story is called The Flying Grayson. And he leaves a message for uh, Batman, of course, Batman and Superman to see. And, of course, they get it. And I love the uh, I love how Batman shows up. All of a sudden, you know, Dick Grayson is there and he's swinging on the trapeze. And then all of a sudden, Batman shows up and catches him as he flies off the as he's as he's flying off the trapeze. And it's 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 a great introduction of Batman to the story. And I thought it was uh, it was it was it was quite good. And it was kind of uh, kind of silly. And and there was just a tinge of a Silver Age DC kind of feel to it that put a smile on my face. Yet just enough of modern day verisimilitude that I could really I could enjoy it. And it was just basically, you know, Dick Grayson saying, "Look, I know we got to go back to our time, but I suspect there's some theft, there's some criminal stuff that's going on here in the circus. Do you mind if we stay here for the next couple of days? I just want I I feel I need to do this." And and it was and that and then the whole story uh, comes through. 
and it's and Travis Moore's art just absolutely nails it. He's the perfect artist for this uh, of of just you know I mean you nailed it with Superman as the strong man you know and Batman with the mask and the, and Robin I mean they fit right into a circus of any superhero anybody wearing tights and looking ridiculous would and so and then and then of course. You've got uh, you've got crime. You've got great art. You've got uh, you've got bad guys, and uh, you got a nice you got a great you got a great resolution, and it's you know this is a feel good story. And at the end, at the end, they they he they leave the circus, and they it's, it's, it's this is a really good feel good story. This is a perfect end cap. When you think we had such a dark serious story. Back with in the previous five issues with the demon Nezha and, and it was deathly serious and everything else to to have the capstone of that story be this story I think is absolutely perfect and this is Mark Wade making a statement this is Mark Wade uh, I've said everything I hope Mark Wade would be when he came back to DC he has been and he always said he wouldn't come back to DC for as long as Dan Didio was there Didio was gone and Mark Wade has been under the radar. He's all he's been doing nose to the grindstone. He hasn't been on social media all that much. He's just put his nose to the grindstone. He's written great stories. Even people that are critics of Mark Wade are loving world's finest because they're focusing on the story. It's a great story. And he's, he's telling fantastic stories. And we, we, anybody who knows Mark Wade, you know, for once our expectations, my expectations are met with someone, uh, a writer. Mark Wade has exceeded them with this series. And I hope that moving forward for DC Comics, that the Mark Wade's sensibility, his style of writing here, I hope they use this as a template mixed in with a little bit of Jeff Johns. And I think the future of DC is bright moving forward. You know, that's that's me in the in the best kind of hopeful manner I can be in. Yeah, I I'm real curious to see what the next story arc is going to be because <laughs> he did such a great job with the the first one. Um, and, you know, going back to not to beat continuity like a dead horse here, but uh, similar to what Tomasi and Brad Walker did with detective comics where, you know, that especially that Arkham Knight storyline they started off with, it was sort of timeless. It could fit in anywhere. That's one thing you could say as much as Mark Wade did um, – you know, pay homage to what Joshua Williamson had done in the uh, Robin series by using the demon Nezha. That those first five issues really are—they could fit anywhere. Yeah, right. It, it's good? not so—it's not so tied in, but it's also not. There's nothing so specific that happens that it can't be happening now in current DC continuity, other than the fact that Dick Grayson's Robin, I guess, if you want to point point to something obviously Dick Grayson's currently Nightwing but uh, anyway let's move on uh, Catwoman number 46 is up next from writer Tinny Howard Sammy Basri does the pencils Vicente Fuentes on inks Jordi Blair on colors and Lucas Gattoni on letters uh, what do you think of this one uh, well first I gotta give a shout out to I mean I I criticize the the existence of varying covers, but I mean, I'm not a fool. I can certainly appreciate beautiful art. And this is actually one where every single, all four, now we, we, we've shown four, or there's three variants as far as I'm aware, and maybe there's more, but the, this is on the preview copies. But every single one of these covers 
is absolutely gorgeous, <laughs> including Cover A, which uh, I think Cover A's have been my favorite so far. I'm, I'm really loving the covers, which is very typical for Catwoman. Catwoman comic, regardless of the quality of the story itself, is always usually generally has pretty good covers. But uh, Teeny Howard here, this, this issue basically uh, wraps up sort of a, a dangling little plot point be, uh, regarding uh, Iko Hasagera who was the uh, the head of the uh, the Hasagera crime family and of course this is one this is uh, this was a, a head of a of the Hasagera crime family this that's Eco's the one who she was the sort of like Catwoman's sort of apprentice back in the Genevieve Valentine Catwoman run and in this this tells the story essentially of how Cat Selena wants to leave the city and so she's with the help of Valmont and, and and Eco, they they basically they they manipulate Black Mask and the other two Dons, uh, Don Tommaso and Don Drago, into uh, basically believing that uh, Eco and and Catwoman had a falling out. Because one of the things that surprised me here is that apparently it's common knowledge in the Gotham underworld that Eco and Catwoman had a sexual liaison. I, that really sort of surprised me that there's this. So it must have been a worst kept secret because, uh, you know, Don Tommaso mentioned uh, Don, Don Tommaso, ma- the mobster. He mentioned it here in this story, and so Eco's uh, credibility is uh, is you know she's they think that she's nothing that she's in league with Catwoman, and Black Mask actually is working with Don Tommaso and Drago, and they've come back because one of the inconsistencies here is a criticism to the story. Uh, of Tinny Howard's, Howard's story is that Black Mask was humiliated. He was shunned. He was made a fool of. He lost his mask. And all the all the other four members of the crime family sort of rejected him. And now suddenly two don't. And they, they're welcoming him back into the fold. And Finbar Sullivan and Iko Hasagera are sort of – they got – They've sort of been excluded from these other three crime families that are talking uh, with uh, with Black Mask, trying to, of course, trying to manipulate it so that they will finally be able to kill Catwoman. It's it's kind of a tired plot point at this point, and and this entire issue is really just involves Selena wanting to get out of the city, and and so all they do is they manipulate a falling out between her and Eco, where basically Eco and uh, Catwoman. You know, they do a very public spectacle it witnessed by Black Mask, Don Tommaso, and Drago, uh, where she, she's like, where Eco rejects her and seemingly kills Catwoman by blowing up her own yacht. Eco blows up her own yacht and deliberately orchestrates things uh, with in league with Selena, saying, we got to manipulate events so it looks like we're rejecting. We have to end our relationship and be public about it in order so I can continue to be a, a mobster and you can continue to, you know, go about your business. And that's really what happens here. Uh, there's a for 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 people that are big fans of of Catwoman's bisexuality. Uh, her relationship with Iko here was explored. Iko is still attracted to Selena. She would. She's very clearly open to having a relationship with Selena here. Uh, you can read between the lines of their dialogue uh, that Eco still finds Selena attractive. And Selena still finds her attractive, but Selena is, is, is detached. She's detached from Valmont. She's detached from Eco. She's detached from Bruce Wayne. Clearly, Selena is not open to any kind of relationship right now. I actually like Tina, Tina Howard's exploration of that, that she's, she's sort of ex- 
I think properly portraying Selena right now is not be, really wanting any kind of relationship. Selena is kind of a mess right now, coming off of a failed relationship, uh, no wedding with Bruce Wayne, Batman, all that, not you know, all that craziness. And so she's not in the right place to have any kind of relationship. And so for so for her just wanting to leave and essentially go overseas with Valmont. I think that's in keeping with the character. Her relationship with Valmont continues to be undefined or complicated, uh, not sexual, at least not yet, as far as we can see. And um, but uh, again, I'm not so. I'm not really sure. There's not much of a story here, other than that Black Mask is once again made a fool of, and Eco's integrity as a mobster is maintained, and Catwoman basically takes off with Valmont out of the country. And and then next issue, I guess we'll we'll see what happens. That's sort of how it how it ends. So that sort of ends this arc, and we'll have a, presumably a brand new story next issue with Selena with Valmont working with Valmont doing something. So um, you know nothing nothing that really blew me away, but an, I think a necessary ending so that we could justify Eco finding a way back into the fold, uh, so that her crime family would have some integrity. And so all this did was sort of reset the, the pieces on the underworld of, of the Gotham City chessboard, so to speak. But uh, and the the art was the art was okay. I didn't mind the art. But uh, what do you think? Yeah, I thought the art was really great. Actually, um, some of the best art we've had from Sami Basri in the uh, in the series so far, especially getting a chance to see uh, Catwoman in, in what's my favorite costume of hers, the old school purple. Uh, well, maybe maybe it's not my favorite. I, I like the purple one where she actually has a skirt, probably the best. But this is a little throwback to '90s with the purple Jim Ballant, uh, if everybody remembers him. Um, but yeah, it is interesting. I, I mean, in terms of her leaving town, I, you know, she talks about n- needing a vacation, but you know, in, in terms of where they're going to go, what they what they're going to do with Valmont, it's like, well, Valmont's the person I know that can get me out of town, has lots of resources, but. You know, when he says, well, where, where do you want to go to relax? And she's more like, um, well, I don't necessarily want to go somewhere to relax. I want to go and do what I do best, which, you know, I'm a thief. So, yeah, we're probably going to get some cool heist story from uh, from Tinny Howard. I'm looking forward to that. And then I, I do love how, you know, that's playing into sort of the uh, the history that Catwoman has had with Eco, you know, over the years. I I haven't read those stories, so I'm not that familiar with it. But we do get a callback to a previous volume of Catwoman where apparently Eco has filled in for Catwoman before, has, has actually put on the costume, and she does that at the end of this issue as well. So, uh, again, I, I, I love the fact that, you know, um, Selena knows she needs to take herself off the table, as it were, um, sets up this situation where it appears that Eco has turned against her, blows her up on the boat. But then Nico's going to be, you know, taking her place in the costume while uh, Selena's off, you know, robbing or stealing or doing whatever. So I think that all plays out really, really well. It fits the narrative of what Tinny Howard's been doing really, really well. Uh, if I have any criticism of the, the series, I still feel like the pacing is a little off. Um, and I, man, I just especially feel like those Harley Quinn Catwoman issues are really out of place in, in tone. But, um, I, I like what Tinny Howard is doing here. It definitely feels crime noir. Um, and it, it feels very different from what came before. And, and, you know, we talked about that when Ram V was leaving the book. Uh, we didn't know what to expect and, you know, how 
hard it was going to be to follow him. And I liked that Tinney is going in, in a completely different direction. You know, uh, talk so often when Ram was writing the book about how it felt very, uh, very flashy in, in a Michael Mann crime story kind of way. This is much more street, much more urban, um, you know, kind of in your face with the mob, you know, with these actual mob characters um, as supporting characters, you know, whether it's Don Tomasi or Dragos or Black Mask himself, uh, you know, it, it's much more, as I said, street. So uh, I'm, I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it. Uh, all right. Up next, we have DC versus Vampires All Out War number two. I kind of referenced this one uh, a little bit earlier. That we get a, a couple pages or uh, a cameo of of Shazam, Billy Batson, right at the end. Uh, it's written by Alex Packnadel and Matthew Rosenberg. The art is by Pasquale Colano. Tones are by Nicola. I think it's Rigi. It's R I G H I. Apologies if I'm mispronouncing that. And the letters are by Troy Petrie. So much like the first issue of the series, uh, it's black and white with some red tones, I guess we'll say. It's how uh, DC is describing it. Um, this is really showing that the end of days against these vampires here, uh, as we saw the heroes headquarters be destroyed last issue. And we get a great recap from John Constantine. Um, and then at the end, we, like I said, we, we see Billy Batson uh, show up and some, somebody named the Baron, um, who kind of has him prisoner and is uh, is using Billy's uh, gift of foresight, which he's had at various times. Uh, and this guy's in Florida, apparently. Um, so I, I you don't know who know. that is? Who, who's no? Billy I don't. I, yeah. I don't. The armor kind of looks like Luther's armor. It does, but I, and I thought, but Luther's dead, so it can't be him. Yeah. So I, I don't know who that is. So. If- yeah, yeah I, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't either. And b- again, Billy refers to him as as the Baron. So uh, I don't know. But what I do know is, I say, even though this this DC versus Vampires All Out War story kind of skips ahead, and uh, granted, the regular DC versus Vampires series has certainly covered a w- widespread period of time, uh, but this feels like you know at least a year or so in the future uh, from when that series started out because yeah, there's not, there's not much left. You got booster gold, you got Constantine, you got dead man, uh, Mary Marvel, Deathstroke and Azrael. Basically that's about all you have left. Um, and their, their plan going up against wonder woman, uh, trying to recruit the help of Talia al Ghul. It all plays really, really well. It comes across as it makes sense. I can understand why they're doing what they're doing. Uh, are there, gaps in the story between what we've had in the regular DC versus vampire series and this series. Yeah. Yeah. There are gaps. Not everything has been explained. A lot of stuff is glossed over in a period of, you know, panel or two, but that's okay because, you know, this feels like the kind of the final chapter They're They're up against the wall. They're back. The heroes are backed into a corner. Um, and, you know, doesn't need to all play out and make sense. Well, sort of yes and no, right? Like, if we take this for being face value of what's going on, then don't we know in the regular DC vampire series that what they're trying right now with getting Supergirl to Australia, to, you know, cause that might be the one place she can, you know, get sunlight and get, gain her powers back. Do, don't we know that fails if they, you know, if we jump forward a year and this is what's going on. Um, but I guess they just expect us not to think about that too much. Like, I'm not sure, but 
you know, putting those kind of continuity issues aside, just read this for what it is on its own as a standalone in this DC versus vampire setting. It works really, really well because the stakes are really high. Um, the characterizations of these characters may not be what we're used to, but you sort of expect that, right? Like, you know, this booster gold, he, he, he's much thinner and kind of emaciated and, you know, kind of ragtag. So wouldn't you expect him to be, you know, a little bit of a different characterization in terms of just being worn down? Um, you know, Constantine is Constantine. <laughs> At least that characterization remains the same. Um, and Deathstroke, you know, kind of similar as well. Obviously, when you talk about Wonder Woman or Talia or Nightwing, it's going to be different based on the fact that, you know, they're vampires now or they're just in, in a completely different place. So I, I feel like it works pretty well. Um, the other thing that I didn't mention is there is a backup called Dark Birth. And we get the first part here. It's by Emma Vaselli. Art is by Hanning. Letters are by Troy Petrie. And my understanding, you know, especially based on that title, Dark Birth, is that we're going to see how uh, th- this is the story of how uh, Dick Grayson Nightwing became the Lord of the Vampires. So I don't know if that's necessary, but I guess, I mean, it's only the first part and it's sort of set up. Um, so we'll see how that plays out uh, as well. Although I did think the art was particularly strong there, but uh, what are your thoughts on these two stories? Uh, well, first I, I, I never, I missed reviewing the first issue of this and I, I'm still, the jury is still out for me although I'm leaning toward really not liking the whole black and white and red. I, although this backup with dark birth Nightwing's sort of his origin of how he was turned to be essentially the, one of the Kings of the vampires, the art was, is really, it looks pretty damn good there. And uh, yeah, so it, you know, it's, I'm actually curious. I'm actually curious to know how this is going to look in the comic book because digitally it looks good. But some of this stuff, when you print it on a, on a comic book page, it, it's faded. It doesn't look as good on the page. So I'm really curious to see how this is going to look in a comic as opposed to how we're seeing it digitally here. Because I, I noticed, uh, I know that Dan Didio, interestingly enough, uh, for Frank Miller Presents, he in his talk at uh, San Diego, he stated specifically that they're printing comics and they're not releasing them digitally at all. Uh, they're only going to be in comic book form and they're going to be uh, – and he mentioned specifically that a lot of the techniques that apparently Frank Miller and his other artists are using, they, they think look better with just on comics and not, not a, with not a digital representation. So it's just an interesting aside there. But in any event, I, I actually like the story. This, this story is like an absolute adrenaline rush of the, the main story itself. I mean, basically, the, the the heroes need sunlight. They need heroes. They need sunlight for humans, and they want to uh, find with Talia's help. They want to find out where all the Lazarus pits are, uh, and they also want to get a hold of Weather Wizard, who's turned into a vampire. Weather, Weather Wizard is a vampire, uh, but he has the ability to channel sunlight uh, in order to to grow algae to keep humans alive, and. Um, uh, dead man, uh, dead man is in league with Constantine. He's helping Constantine out. There's a lot of characters here in here in black and white. I'd be lying if I said that I was able to identify all of them. Uh, sometimes the art I think was a little bit unclear, a little wonky, but there is a, I will give credit here. There's a very creative use of the color red. Uh, but honestly, sometimes I feel like they're just coloring this 
particular piece red because they need it to stand out more, not because it's actually red. And so it seems like sort of an odd, <laughs> I mean, I get it. It's interesting. It's this, this, they're experimenting. They're thinking outside the box a little bit. Uh, you know, again, it's, you know, again, we'll have to see. I, I, I get this. There's action. There's action here. There's humor here. There's, there's, uh, there is fun to be had in this issue. You know, lots of characters. Slade, Slade talks to Jason Todd. Jimmy gets hit by Wonder Woman. Mar Mary Marvel attacks Wonder Woman. Slade versus Wonder Woman. Uh, we get Booster Gold. We get decapitations. We get Dead Man possessing Booster Gold. We get, uh, we get uh, who is holding, as you said, Billy Batson. What's you know who's controlling Billy Batson? Uh, is it this? Is it like King of the Vampires? Who is that guy? We don't really know. So there's there's this is actually fairly interesting. I really wish though that this was. I kind of wish that this was colored like normally, but then um, I don't know. I'd I'd really like to see how this would look, just with standard uh, standard colors. To be honest with you, but I don't. I am intrigued. I'm not. I'm not turned off by it. I just it's like. Hmm. You know, it's, I, I, I always get this feeling that DC's trying to slowly turn me into manga because they want to get lazier and lazier and lazier and they keep eliminating the colors and eventually they're all going to be black and white. And so they're just sort of weaning us off the colors now. <laughs> well, we've both talked about, you know, whether it was Superman red and blue or Wonder Woman black and gold, Batman black and white, how we were getting really tired of the limited color palette kind of thing and yeah, and yeah I, I don't necessarily think they're trying to push us to manga but i mean they're not paying a colorist for future state gotham <laughs> yeah. that's more money in their pocket so yeah anyway uh all right up next harley quinn in space uh this is task force xx chapter three written by stephanie phillips the art is by georges duarte and simone bionfantini or fontino uh, Ramula Fajardo Jr. does the colors and world design on letters. What do you think of this one? I I actually I've been enjoying the variant covers uh, more than, and I'm not really a variant cover fan, but I've actually enjoyed the variant covers more than I've actually enjoyed the uh, the, the story itself. But the story itself isn't bad. This is this is a Suicide Squad story. It's what it feels like to me. This is Harley Quinn in space, and we got some pretty cool variant covers, and we got. I, I like the use of Jace Fox. I think it's a creative use of, uh, pardon me, not Jace Fox, but Luke Fox, uh, the formal, the former, the former Bat. What was he? Bat Boy. <laughs> Who was Luke Fox? Batwing. Batwing. Bat sorry. <laughs> Batwing. Oh, is that Batwing? Is that the name of uh, former Luke Fox character? Or is that like the name of Nightwing's dog? I, I'm not sure, but anyways. No, that's bite wing. Oh, bite wing, right? Yeah, <laughs> keep yeah. it straight, man. <laughs> yeah, man. I got to I would. I would fail like a a, a test for uh, beginners here for the DC universe. Good grief! But in any event, I, I didn't. I, I actually just. I found myself essentially skim reading this, and I don't really know why. It just. It feels. I don't feel like anything's at stake on this, and I wish. I wish this was. I wish it was a little bit funnier. I. I, I like the art better. I, I like the art better than Riley Ralsmo's art. I, uh, the, in fact, some of the pages really pop off the page. I really like the art on some of these pages and it makes me, I actually think I would have a better appreciation of, um, of maybe this, the actual initial stories that, that, uh, Stephanie Phillips told to begin with had, had this artist been used or a different style than, than Roswell. And, um, uh, but I'm not. 
this this feels like chaos and i suppose it should because it's it, it it's a harley story it feels like chaos it feels wonky this feels like a really really watered down version of the suicide squad except luke fox is really really nice you know and he's got a lot of money he's willing to share it with these criminals that he's uh, help, ha, who he he goes to for help out of desperation because the justice league is dead and the teen titans are in total chaos given the events of dark crisis <laughs> issue 2 and 3 so um it, it, it's there's fun to be had here it comes out weekly we know uh i have read to the end and i just uh it's all right it's all right i i it's 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 neither spectacular it's neither terrible it's right middle of the road for me and the art's a lot of fun and i love the i love the covers and so i mean i'm getting every issue i so you know as a Harley fan, I think this is – if you're a Harley fan, then you're used to different types of stories. This is Harley in space. This doesn't happen very often, so it was an easy thing for me. You know, I can only think of a handful of other times that Harley's been in uh, uh, space in her own – I think this is the first time she's been in space in her own comic, but I might be wrong on that. But <laughs> Anyways, what do you think? Yeah, um, so I like the Harley aspect of it and the, the Task Force XX aspect of it. I do feel like the – while I like seeing Luke Fox and it's nice that somebody's you know actually using him because you know, originally the rumor was he was going to be the next Batman and then it turned out to be Tim Fox and who's now going by Jace Fox. Um, but anyway, it's nice to see Luke being used. A uh, little bit of a cliche though – with this idea of this element X that Luke Fox had been experimenting with and, you know, fired it off. And then, and, and Stephanie Phillips herself kind of mentions it in terms of referencing Frankenstein's monster um, through the voice of, of Harley Quinn. But, you know, you could look at um, Hank Pym creating Ultron or uh, Ultron then creating vision, Tony Stark with his various AIs he's created over the years that then, um, you know, become malevolent. And so, you know, at the end of this issue, when we get the Solomon Grundy element X infected Solomon Grundy showing up um, and saying to Luke Fox, you know, hello father or what have you, it, it felt a little, uh, it felt a little tropey. Um, so that's not my favorite. This hasn't been my favorite issue of the run. I really enjoyed last issue, the first issue and last issue I enjoyed more, especially last issue because it paid homage with a lot of the one-liners and quips and Easter eggs to so many of those great, you know, science fiction slash horror movies that we've had uh, over the past 20 years. This one, we don't, we don't actually get a lot of Harley. It, it's more about Luke Fox and this element X. Um, but I will give uh, Stephanie Phillips a lot of credit for being really consistent with the level of danger and tension that Harley and the rest of task force XX are in. Uh, we've talked in the, uh, I think when we reviewed the previous issue about, you know, the, the death of Harley Quinn storyline that's coming up and how likely it's going to have something to do with the fact that, yeah, she's in space and no easier way to, you know, to kill her than when she's in space. Yeah. Plus at the end of the day, it has killer frost in it. And I'm a big killer frost fan. So uh, yeah. I am it seems enjoying. a little bit odd that that verdict, uh, having just tried to kill Harley, that that Luke Fox would think would be a good idea to have verdict also be part of the team. But uh, you know, you know, little things like that. But that's okay. You know, you got to have a little bit of drama. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I mean, this is a fun team to to put together. And clearly, uh, Stephanie Phillips isn't afraid to you know pull the trigger. The body count will end up being high. 
And you can just point to Bolt being killed, you know, in the first issue. Um, (laughs) And you kind of think, okay, well, so he's going to survive in some way, right? Nope. Nope. He's not. Uh, So, uh, you know, and he seemed like he was going to be, you know, a big part of the story and then he's just gone. So uh, I expect the rest of them, Lashina, Killer Frost, Although I'd hate to see you know her go. Although she she may be the one that, that survives just based on the fact that she can absorb life force. Uh, Bronze Tiger Solomon Grundy's already dead. Um, verdict: If she does get killed, you kind of you don't feel bad because she kind of deserves it based on you know what she did to Harley. Um, so in the end, you know I'll be curious how this gets resolved in terms of the Element X part of the story um, because I expect Task Force X not Task Force X X not to survive. So. We'll have to see how that all that all plays out. So, uh, all right. Up next, we have Nightwing number ninety-five, written by Tom Taylor. Bruno Redondo is the artist. Caio Felipe does the inks for pages thirteen through seventeen and nineteen through twenty-one. Adriana Lucas is on colors. Wes Abbott is on uh, letters. This was a heck of a lot of fun. Um, maybe my favorite issue of the series so far since the very first issue, which was just so emotional. Uh, this one I enjoyed for, for different reasons. Part of um, that being just the ruthlessness of Blockbuster, which Tom Taylor really gets across in this issue. You know, we know that the former commissioner, um, McLean, is being, uh, you know, he was, he was captured trying to uh, run away from uh, Bloodhaven trying to escape last issue. Now in this issue, we see him in the Bloodhaven police station. He's being interrogated by a couple of cops. He mentions that he's not going to do any time. He's going to get off scot free because he has all of this information on Blockbuster and he's going to be willing to turn it over for full immunity. And no sooner does he say that than one of these cops pulls out a gun and shoots him because these cops are corrupt and they actually work for Blockbuster. And he has had it. He's fed up. He's not going to take it anymore. Um, but Nightwing is sort of feeling the same way, you know, uh, he knows that he, he wants to make Bloodhaven a better place, a safer place. He knows he doesn't necessarily have the, uh, the ability to, to trust, uh, anybody other than Maggie Sawyer, who's just come in to be the police commissioner from outside hired by Melinda Zuko, uh, who is supposedly, we still don't, you know, haven't had any proof, um, but it's supposedly Nightwing's sister, uh, so everything is sort of coming to a, a head. And I, I know in the past, Rocky, you've talked about this um, series moving at somewhat of a snail's pace. Yeah. Can't disagree with you there, especially when we look at things like the, the heart heartless is his name or heartless killer who shows up and then disappears and then shows back up. We still know next to nothing about him. Uh, and here we are, you know, almost how like 15 issues in to, yeah, uh, it's, yeah, eighty. Yeah, I think you're right. About fifteen 80, issues 82, in. Eighty-two. Yeah. yeah, thirteen <laughs> yeah. issues in. So, yeah. yeah, it's been over a year. So, so I get what I get what you're saying. But this one does have a lot of action, and of course, the Bruno Redondo art is as fantastic as ever. I love that Dick Grayson shows how much he cares about the city of Bloodhaven by finally doing what you sort of sort of expect people to do, right? Like, how many times have we t- talked about? Well, if Batman really wants to clean up Gotham, why doesn't he just get all the really powerful superheroes in there and just go to town and actually clean it up. That's what Robin does here or uh, Nightwing does here. He recruits, you know, some really powerful members uh, uh, that uh, other heroes that can help him out. And they simultaneously, and I'm talking Donna Troy, Cyborg, Changeling, you know, Wally West, Flash, um, Batwoman, 
you know, so they can take out you know, four different um, crimes that are all happening at the same time and, you know, finally have the, the proof they need to take down Blockbuster and to show him that he doesn't own Bloodhaven. And in response to that, uh, he Blockbuster attacks Haven, you know, kind of the neighborhood that um, that Dick Grayson has used part of the money that Alfred left him to create a foundation, to, to make a safe place for people. Blockbuster goes there, pulls no punches, threatens children, gets the upper hand on Nightwing, gets him to, to lay down, uh, and then attacks him. And when he does, he knocks his masks off and sees that uh, Nightwing and Dick Grayson are one and the same. And then uh, the, the blurb for next issue is Secrets No More. Based on the ruthlessness of Blockbuster, based on what we've seen before, and I'm not always the biggest fan of revealing uh, secret identities to super uh, villains. Uh, and basically it's because it, I feel like in a way you can get a good story out of it. Don't get me wrong. And it definitely raises the stakes and, um, you know, shows there's consequences to these actions, but it's also limiting in a way because once they know that secret, it can never be put back. Now that's not always true. We've seen daredevil find a way to do it. Uh, Spider-Man's found a way to do it in the past. And, um, but each time you do that, then it's harder to, to undo the next time. Um, so, I like the impact. I like the moment. Um, but so how do you stop Blockbuster from, first of all, using that knowledge to get the upper hand against Nightwing? How do you stop him? Even if you stop Blockbuster, how do you stop him from, you know, spreading that knowledge around? So yeah, it, it, it in a way it's, it opens up new stories and it's very impactful, but in another way it's kind of limiting, but, uh, I, if anybody can find out a way to uh, make it work, it's Tom Taylor. And I, I gotta say, like when I got to this moment, when I got to the end of this issue, and I saw what happened, I just had a big grin on my face. It's like, holy shit! Like this is a big deal. This is a big, impactful moment. Um, and it's you know, it's this kind of thing, this kind of reaction, this kind of emotion that this sort of a story beat engenders. It's the reason that I read comics, you know, it's just, it was such a cool moment. It just, man, you, we know that Blockbuster's not going to win in the end, especially because it's a Tom Taylor book. And in Tom Taylor books, for the most part, if you've set aside uh, deceased, uh, but, and even in that one, when you really get down to it, the good guys win, you know, that's what's great about Tom Taylor books. They're, they're ultimately hopeful and optimistic. So, you know, Dick Grayson's going to prevail. But how is he going to do it, especially now that Blockbuster knows his secret identity? Yeah, this was a fantastic issue. Really, really enjoyed it. What would you think? Well, I, I, I think that uh, in, in one of Tom Taylor's traits is that he does – he's not particularly great at sophisticated plots. And this is a – there are so many plot contrivances here that conveniently come into place and wrap things up so conveniently that it actually stretches credulity – but as as we have said before, as I as I've said before, he he's so good, and maybe it's because of Bruno Redondo's art. He's so good at sort of focusing more on the character that you kind of forgive that the conveniences of his plot because so many things call it fall into place here. Uh, Melinda Zuko is rescued by at the beginning. She's rescued by Dick Grayson, uh, and then there, or and then. Uh, Oracle has all the evidence. Melinda Zuko has all the evidence. 
she works. Maggie Sawyer happens to be there. Uh, Oracle happens to have a list name of all the corrupt cops and gives the list to Maggie Sawyer so they know who all the corrupt cops are. Uh, uh, former Commissioner McLean is conveniently killed, so he's off the playing field. Everything is good. Everything's going to be wrapped up with a nice little, nice little bow. And it's clear that Blockbuster is down, that this thing is, you know, that, you know, all the corruption in Bloodhaven seems to be gone. We're heading toward a happy ending. Uh, but then Blockbuster just does something absolutely insane. He goes and attacks New Haven, tries to, and, he, and he's threatening to kill the lives of children. And, and, and of course, Nightwing shows up and, and, and willingly lays down his batons be, and allows himself to be slammed by Blockbuster. And so that all, that actually all worked. But it was very convenient, and there was nothing sophisticated by this plot whatsoever throughout the run. However, it's they are so damn good. We got so many great character moments. We're probably headed toward a wedding for Babs and Nightwing. I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, eh, you know what? I don't really care. <laughs> I'm kind of glad. This is it's very convenient on the plot. That I think that's a legitimate criticism, but I'm enjoying it. Also, you made a very good observation about. You know, what is Blockbuster going to do now? I thought Bruno Rondando, I think, is very deliberately. Look at the expression on Blockbuster's face when he realizes it's, that Nightwing is Dick Grayson. It's very convenient. He he looks down and then he looks almost angry because I'm thinking I'm thinking that Blockbuster knows that he can't kill him. Blockbuster has to be thinking to himself, he was warned by Lady Shiva. You know, like, you don't take this guy down. No, he couldn't find a hitman to take out Nightwing because even Lady Shiva, the greatest, arguably the greatest martial artist, uh, one-time assassin in the world, wasn't going to go near him. So Blockbuster has to be thinking, my God, uh, I just had half the half what remains of the Justice League, <laughs> well, whatever, the Justice League and Teen Titans take out all the, my criminal network in Bloodhaven. And, and they're obviously friends with Nightwing. And, and what happens if I kill this guy? What happens if I kill Dick Grayson? And not only is Nightwing favored, but Dick Grayson is the philanthropist, the number one philanthropist in Bloodhaven who donated a billion dollars to the haven that I just destroyed. I mean, Blockbuster has to be thinking. I mean, I know Blockbuster is kind of, he can be, he can go insane, but he's, he's still a criminal mastermind. So he, he, he's got to collect himself and think about what he's doing here because the worst play that he can do He's got to start thinking like Kingpin. And I'm thinking to myself, Tom Taylor wants to make Blockbuster in. He wants Blockbuster to be, you know, the Kingpin to the Daredevil of Nightwing. And so I'm. that's what I'm most fascinated about is what is Blockbuster going to do now? Because quite frankly, this was actually a brilliant Blockbuster did this to himself because I, I can't see him killing Nightwing. I, I can't see, I can't see him doing it. That would be the worst play for him right now. He'd have nothing but a target on his back for the rest of his life, with every hero of the DC universe on his ass. But but anyways. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Plus, like you said, you know Shiva's, uh, you know, message to him that you can't kill Nightwing. So I, obviously, I noticed that um, that expression as well of anger, and I took that to be, oh, you know, all of a sudden the two people that he hates the most, he finds out are the exact same person and he's, you know, just filled with anger. But I, I didn't even think about, you know, the whole Shiva aspect and yeah, what, do, what does he do? Um, so yeah, very, very much looking forward to the next uh, issue. We'll have to see how that plays out. And yeah, Bruno Redondo art spectacular as always. Uh, okay. Up next we have the flash number seven eighty five. 
This is written by Jeremy Adams. Art is by Ammon K. Noelapan. Uh, Jeremy Cox does the colors. Rob Lee on letters. This is the search for Barry Allen part three. Uh, once again, uh, we'll be singing the praises of Jeremy Adams and how fantastic he writes this book. Uh, but you go first. What'd you think? I mean, I, I had a lot of fun with this issue. I, you know what? Uh, I've got as a quick side note. Well, number one, I love Jeremy Adams and and I really enjoy this issue. And, uh, I'm even starting to hope, be more hopeful for Tim Sheridan because it, you know, the more I hear about Tim Sheridan, he's been telling some stories on Twitter about how he, he didn't have much choice. He had to use Red X and he didn't have a lot of control over the storyline and Teen Titans Academy and he never felt particularly comfortable with it. And so Tim Sheridan and Jeremy Adams are doing such a good job collaborating on Flashpoint Beyond with Jeff Johns. I mean, I'm hoping that, you know, we're all paying dividends here. That's a slight digression. Jeremy Adams here in The Flash does a nice job. Ultimately, this issue ties in. We, we This culminates with Barry Allen. They find Barry Allen. And ultimately, this issue ends with Barry Allen, uh, you know, being rescued by you know, Wally West and and, and Linda uh, in, 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 just a, in just a great sequence of events where ultimately Barry says, look, I th- you know, they tell they tell Barry what happened to the members of the Justice League. Barry Barry basically tells him if the Justice League died like that, then it sounds like they went through what I went through. So I can tell you, Wally, that the Justice League are not dead. They're on. They're trapped in a world much like the one I'm on. And of course, that's exactly what they are. In in the last few issues, Jay Jay and Irie have been on this sort of like Mad Max world with a Mad Max kind of Barry Allen, <laughs> and having an adventure there. And meanwhile, we have uh, Wallace. Uh, Wally West and Wallace basically trying to rescue, uh, trying to snap Barry Allen out of it to get him to, because Barry Allen is is living in his dream world, but he thinks Wally West is reverse Flash, and you know, it's there, there's so many great character moments here. There's just there's uh, my favorite moments are with Jay and Irie, but also there's really great moments with Linda because Linda's got. She's got speed powers too. And I, I love her. You know, we have so many speedsters in this comic. And it's almost like in, in under the hands of a different writer, I could you could probably think be a little bit worried that, well, wait a minute, don't give everybody speed powers. I mean, how many I mean, are you handing out speed force like the candy here? Come on. But it works. Uh Linda getting powers, uh going after her kids. Her relationship with uh, with Wally underscores the power of this uh, of this narrative. The relationship with their kids, Jay and Irie taking up the Night Flash, taking on the Night Flash, <laughs> and this new character Knives Maroney, who ultimately finds one of the bracelets that the children that Jay and Irie lose. So we can probably expect to see Knives Maroney, who's the bad guy in the the Night Flash universe, showing up in our universe it's, or at, in the mainstream DC universe at some point. There's just there, there's a lot of very interesting things that uh, happened here, and it's an it. This is I consider this this is what this is a genuine dark crisis tie-in. I mean, frankly, World Without a Justice League, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and Dark Crisis, uh, Young Justice. Those aren't they don't feel like tie-ins to me, really, not really. This feels like a genuine tie-in because you need a Flash. Every crisis needs a Flash, and this one ends with Barry Allen 
finally getting his head in the game and he's going to go and he's going to rescue the members of the Justice League who are trapped in those worlds, those dream worlds uh, that our pariah is manipulating. And I, I love this. And and there's just great moments here too with uh, Jesse Quick and, uh, oh, I forgive me, I forgive the other Max. Max Mercury. Thank you, Max Mercury. Uh, in the in the it's sort of the, the Mad Max universe, as, as I've been calling it, because I lack whatever else, whatever it might be called. But it's a lot of fun. The visuals here are fantastic. Uh, Amanke Nahulapan, <laughs> and uh, on the art, the art, and Jeremy Cox on the colors. The colors are fantastic. When, uh, when when I'm looking at a page here, and you whenever you see Barry Allen and Wally West beside each other. I mean, you, you got to do the shading just right on them as, as characters because they're both red, but you got, they got slightly different lightnings. You got slightly, those variations are absolutely crucial. And you got to be a very good artist to pull it off and not feel like it's just a bunch of red ink on a page. And, and they, and he does it to great effect. I, this is enjoyable. And this, this inspires hope because I mean, I mean, this comic book ends with Wally West saying, we're going to save the world. And you know what? Coming out of Wally West's mouth, I believe it coming out of his mouth pretty much more than any other character in the DC universe with the possible exception of Kal-El Superman. So I'm, I, I, I love this. This was the way I wanted, uh, this is how I wanted this to end. And I'm looking forward. This gets me more excited for Dark Crisis. This gets me more excited for Barry Allen kicking ass. And I'm, I'm a Wally West fan, but I'm cheering for Barry Allen at the end of this too to get into Dark Crisis because I'm looking forward to Dark Crisis number four. <laughs> And, and, uh, anyways, uh, this, this, this put a smile on my face. And once again, uh, kudos to Jeremy Adams and the whole creative team here. I'm, I'm and Nehupan and Jeremy Cox for putting out a, a fun issue. Yeah, I, I agree. The art by Noella Pan is fantastic. I, we talked about it previously, especially when you talk about the world, this idealized world that Barry Allen is, uh, trapped in because it has a little, you know, colored dots, like old school printing. And so he does a good job of that. I think the design for the night flash is, you know, it's kind of this a cross between Batman and, and uh, Barry Allen flash. I think, think, think that design is great. The design of um, the Mad Max Barry Allen also done really, really well. So I can't say enough about the art and, and you're right. I'm th this, it's a very fast paced story. So we're getting panels that are probably a little smaller than we have gotten um, by Noella Pan in the, in the past. Um, that's okay. He does a good job with, with that restriction. There's still plenty of detail, even though the panels are a bit smaller. So probably a bit smaller than even he, he would like, but uh, he does a fantastic job. And there are some double page spreads with unique panel layout. Lightning as the, um, the borders between the panels, those all work really, really well also. So I, I can't say enough good things about the art and the color really helps it shine as well. You know, you mentioned uh, a lot of red in the issue, but it never gets muddy. Everything's always really, really clear, whether it's, you know, the lightning or the speed force lines or what have you. So visually a very, very good issue. Uh, in terms of story, I don't have a lot to add to what you said. Um, other than Jeremy Adams continues to impress me. There are a lot of characters in this book, a lot. And they all, uh, it doesn't feel overcrowded. It doesn't feel like it moves too slow. It's paced very, very well. Yeah. Uh, I'm just continually impressed with Jeremy Adams and how he rises to these challenges. You know, we've talked a lot in the past about um, titles having to tie into, a, you know, an event or how it can disrupt the flow uh, of what 
the uh, writer is, is trying to do and tell their own story. Uh, it's always been a very seamless um, story when, when Adams has had to tie in with other things, whether it be the War for Earth 3 or in this case, Dark Crisis. So again, just, just really, really impressed. Uh, the other thing that I'll kind of reiterate that you said, um, you know, the character moments, specifically for me, the character moments with uh, with Linda, because I agree with you in, in terms of, oh, man, everybody has the speed force. And I admit, even when, even myself, when we first found out that Linda Park had speed powers, I, I was a little ambivalent about it. I'm like, okay, it makes sense, I guess, when you think about it, because she's around the speed force all the time. Why would she be the only one in that family to actually not have speed powers? That wouldn't make sense, I guess, if you stop to think about it. But do we really need another, uh, you know, character with, with speed abilities in this book? Um, but based on the great character moments and interactions between Mr. Terrific and Linda, uh, you know, where she, she says at the beginning, well, I love that you think you have a choice. Like, these are my kids. I'm going after them. And anybody who has kids, you know, will <laughs> identify with that. Not only she's, she's my husband and my kids are out there. You're, you know, you're a smart man. You're not going to stop me. Um, and Mr. Terrific, like, yeah, you're, you know, you're right. Um, I, I still am looking forward to the moment where uh, Wally has to have that conversation with Linda. It's clear, you know, toward the end of the story when he looks over and he sees her running, she, you know, she runs past him and kind of pats him on the butt. It's a great, you know, moment Wally, the expression on Wally's face is like, wait a second, you know, how is she <laughs> running this fast? So we haven't, um, you know, we haven't had that conversation. We haven't had that character moment or interaction yet. So I'm still uh, looking forward to that, but it was a great nod here to do the, you know, slap on the butt and she winks at him and he gets this big grin on his face. Um, it was at the, it was that moment that, that put me at ease. You know, I stopped having those reservations. Like, do we do, do we really need another? Like, do we really have to give Linda Park speed powers? But just based on the fun, how fun this was, and seeing uh, Wally's reaction to it, like, yeah, this is going to be great. Like, I look forward to some stories that are fun and hopeful and bright. Um, and Jeremy Adams, when he was on our show last, ta talked about that. That's what he wants the Flash title to be: really fun for all ages, and you know, uh, really accessible. Um, and that's what this can be. It can be Wally and Linda and Jay and Irie all going out having adventures together uh, and be a, like a fun, adventuresome book, like, a, you know, kind of like the Fantastic Four. But in this case, they actually are family, even more so than the Fantastic Four are. So uh, that really that moment really put me at ease. And I'm, I'm totally on board with Linda Park uh, having powers now. Um, and so, yeah, if, if if I have any you know complaint or nitpick, it's that we haven't we haven't been able to see that conversation. And every time Linda's had to uh, has tried to have that conversation, something always interrupts. Um, but I'm I'm kind of okay with that because it gave us this moment. But I am looking forward to anticipating uh, Wally and and Linda having that conversation. And you almost wonder if Wally's going to take her aside. I, I did appreciate the moment at the end with uh, with Wally saying, "Yeah, we're going to go save the world." But hey, maybe you want to go talk to your wife for thirty seconds and have that conversation real quick. Like, what the hell? How do you have such speed powers? Uh, just because I know that uh, Jeremy Adams is going to nail that moment, so look forward to that. Yeah. Uh, all right, just a couple books left. Up next, we have uh, a milestone title. It's Duo. It's written by Greg Pak. Pencils are by Koi Fam. Inks by Scott Hanna. Chris Sotomayor does the colors. Janice Chang on letters. It's issue number four. Um, 
we learned about the immutables who uh, last issue who are these immortals who uh, were trying to recruit um, David and uh, and Maya or I'm sorry David and what's his wife's name Maya's the detective Kelly his wife's name is uh, Kelly. Kelly that's right Kelly yeah. Kelly that's right um, so we know they're trying to to recruit David and and the uh, nanobots that have uh, infected his body. Uh, first, they were thinking that they needed to take him out. Then, you know, the leader of the immutables, like, no, he can actually help us. And then we found out that there's this other faction, if you will, um, who sort of enemies to, um, to the immutables called Tinker Technologies. And they're the ones that attacked the immutables last issue. And we find out uh, a lot more uh, about them. In, in this particular issue and the, the person that runs the, the company, Dr. Emerus Tinker, and he seems to be formidable and he doesn't come across as this uh, mustache twirling bad guy. Um, and, you know, a lot of the things he's saying in terms of what he, what he wants, he, he's, he's like David, he's you know, trying to recruit David and he knows Kelly's trapped in there as well. He's saying, yeah, I, I want to help you. I want to do the things that you were trying to do, you know, solve, um, diseases and, you know, famine and, and those kind of things. Um, but Kelly especially doesn't trust him. And this is the company that tried to buy out the company that David and Kelly were working for to begin with. So there's very much a political aspect of the book, a lot of moving parts. We have these uh, immortal immutables. We have the sort of technology um, faction that is uh, Tinker Technologies. And we have David with his, you know, wife's brain, maybe it's only her brain panels, uh, 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 brain patterns. Uh, maybe it is her consciousness. That is something that, uh, that Tinker, you know, brings up to David. Hey, if her physical brain was destroyed, can that really be her inside? So he's definitely manipulating. He's trying to get what he wants, you know, like any good, um, CEO will and, or any good zealot for that matter, who completely believes hundred percent in his cause. So again, a lot of political aspect to the book, a lot of action in this one as well. And I, I mean, I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think Greg Pak is uh, writing a lot of comics right now, but man, I, I've been a fan of his for you know a long time, whether it's his um, more creator owned independent stuff like uh, Kingsway West at Dark Horse or, you know, his, his awesome Hulk run. Uh, well, he did Atlas. At, he worked, I think he, uh, he, Created a lot of the Atlas characters at Marvel, didn't he? Those eight. Yeah, characters. yeah, yeah, yeah. He did, but he. I don't. I mean, when I, I follow him on Twitter, he talks a lot about how he's writing a cookbook right right now. Uh, but anyway, um, I say that to say I'm, I'm glad that he, we're getting something from him. I'm, I'm yeah. and I'm glad it's this story. This is, you know, I didn't necessarily have expectations for this. You know, we've talked before about how this isn't uh, one of these new milestone properties that's uh, a derivative of you know something from the past like static or icon and hardware uh, icon and rocket or hardware even blood syndicate you know there was a previous series like this is wholly new there's no version of duo uh, in the first go round in the first iteration of milestone uh, but I'm glad we have it here because again I didn't have expectations because there's nothing necessarily to, to base it on but this is like it's just so well done it's exceeding uh, it's surprising me how good it is. You know, if I, if I didn't have expectations, but if I had, this probably would be exceeding them because it's so good. And the Koi fam art is, it's a little stylized, but it really, really works. Um, and I especially like the, uh, 
the way he sets up his, his action. Um, there's not a lot of detail in the panels when he's showing these fights and it really helps the characters pop off the page. Like typically, um, I'm not a big fan of that. Like I'd like more detail in the background, but if, for some reason, his style, um, works better. I think when, when the backgrounds are minimized. So I, I'm really enjoying this. Um, and I, I, I hope, I hope that it's selling well enough that we're going to get a, another volume because it's been fantastic so far. What are your thoughts? Uh, first, I want to say that if you actually having bought the physical copies of the of the th- first three issues so far, there's something about uh, I just love the quality of them. Th- these are gorgeous looking comic books, and this is uh, this fourth one. I haven't I haven't got picked up this copy yet, but it looks to be gorgeous, and uh, so I just uh, and it's it's a bonus, quite frankly, that the story is is pretty damn good too. And no one's talking about this. No one's no one seems to be talking about this series or reviewing it. And I think it's unfortunate because it deserves some attention. I think because it's uh, I think it's I think it's interesting. And you know, uh, Greg Pak's done a really good job here of of showing there the, there's a conflict between husband and wife between David and his wife Kim. Kim is it's basically David's body and Kim's consciousness is within his body, which is filled with nanites. And they are, uh, they want to be, they've become essentially extremely powerful, uh, super powerful. They can pretty much do anything with the nanites that make up their, their physical essence. And these immu- immutables, which are essentially a group of immortals, they, they're the only ones on earth who are immortal. And then all of a sudden this human becomes immortal with these nanites just like them. And so this um, Marius character who's runs the immutables, they, they want to control David and Kim. They want to control duo. Meanwhile, you got this Dr. Emerus Tinker of Tinker Technologies. He's a human that wants to create immortality for humans to, to, to cure everything. But he, of course, he's got a nefarious agenda as well. And so there, there's a very interesting philosophical dilemma here that I, I love the theme. I, I like that underscores this narrative. What do you choose? Who do you trust? Do you, do you trust the immutables that are telling you, look, we've been immortal. You don't want to have more people like us on the earth, you know, uh, and but maybe the, immor- the immutables have an agenda, too, right? because they want to keep their power, keep their uniqueness. They don't want humans to be like them. But then do you, can you really touch a corporate powerhouse? I mean, do we really trust Facebook or, or, or YouTube? Do we really trust Tinker Technologies that they're going to control this? And I, I love the ending here where you have uh, essentially Kim taking over the body with her her consciousness taken over the body, which normally David was mostly in control of. And she's being a little bit more kick-ass in terms of, uh, she's got a, more of a hardline approach to, to uh, dealing with this situation than, than her husband does. And so th- that dichotomy underscores the, the, the narrative as well, which makes it all the more, more interesting. And I'm not sure how many issues this is, but this is issue four, but... Um, is, is, is this a six issue arc? I, I mean, I'm, a, I, I made that assumption based on the fact that the other milestone, um, series were six issue arcs. But one thing that you notice is, you know, whether it was static or icon and rocket or hardware or even blood syndicates going on, it was always static season one, you know, yeah. uh, hardware season one, this doesn't say duo season one. So I, maybe it's just an ongoing and it's going to last as long as sales uh, allow it to and it doesn't necessarily have a cutoff. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. But no, either so way, guess- this is a, this is, this is a, you know, I wish it was getting more attention, but I like that it's Earth M too, 
We, we, we have, I don't know what the hell's left of DC's multiverse, if there even, even exists anymore, but <laughs> I like that. I like that milestone. The, there's an Earth M just for the milestone characters. It's good to see. Yeah, exactly. I agree. Uh, all right. On to the last book. Uh, save the best for last, I suppose. Batman One Bad Day from writer Tom King. Mitch Garretts is the artist. Clayton Cowell on letters. Um, wow. That's all, that's all I have to say. <laughs> the best uh, for last. This but best for yeah. last. Did yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this, this is definitely my pick of the week, hands down. Not, nothing came close to this in my in my mind. But I'm, so, I'm, so I don't know. I, I don't know that this is my my pick of the week. I, I I probably have to go bigger than that. This might be the best comic I've read all year. <laughs> um, you know, like I talk about getting that big grin on my face at the end of um, at the end of Nightwing. I mean, I was kind of grinning the whole time while while reading this. Yeah. Uh, it, and again, like we want to talk a little bit about expectations. We know that, uh, you know, Mitch Garrett had, had talked like it was under wraps for a while that this was the, the latest project him and Tom King were working on together. But, you know, if you ask Mitch what he was working on, he would, you know, say, ah, I can't really say, but if you go back and listen, you know, to interviews I've done over the years, whenever anybody asked me what my dream project would be. Um, you know, that's, that's basically what I'm getting to work on right now. And, you know, his dream project was, a you know, a Batman title with Riddler as the villain. And so, you know, based on that and based on the track record that King has with Garrett's, whether it was Mr. Miracle or Strange Adventures or their, um, their issues of Batman they did, did together, everything has been, you know, of the utmost quality, you know, great storytelling, really good collaboration. So my expectations for this were really high, you know, especially because uh, I'm a fan of Mitch's work. I'm a fan of Tom's work. I love when they collaborate. Like, I, you know, I just, I had really high expectations. I expected this to be really good. That being said, it, this exceeded my expectations by so much because it's sort of, it, in a lot of ways, it's the story or the, the outcome or, or Batman makes decisions that you, you kind of, have always wanted him to make, or at least a lot of us have, you know, in the back of your mind, like, you know, answer that question. Like, why doesn't Batman just kill the Joker at some point? Like there's gotta be that <laughs> point where he's just like, enough is enough. And, you know, you and I were talking about this before we started recording and it's like, okay, the, the title is one bad day. So what if Batman just snapped one day? He just had a bad, that's it. Enough, enough with the revolving door of, you know, Gotham city or black gate. Gotham City Police Department or got or Blackgate or Arkham Asylum, whatever. Like I'm going for, you know, think about this logically. What's going to save the most lives? You know, uh, I think it's Immanuel Kant or Kant, the, the philosopher who talks about utilitarianism. What's, what's the best, what achieves the most happiness? What's the best for the most people? Those are the decisions you should make. You know, if Batman really stopped to think about it, you know, how, how do you truly stop the Joker or the Riddler or the Penguin or whoever, from killing people. Well, it's the final solution, right? Isn't that what um, the Nazis called it? The final solution. You, you kill them. You take them out. You kill one to save thousands or hundreds or, or whatever it is, right? And so, uh, you know, that that's ultimately, and again, it, it's not 100%. It's not overt, but it seems to be what Batman finally chooses. Um, 
but inspired by the Riddler himself, inspired by the fact that the Riddler, you know, the whole idea of the story is, is that the Riddler is the smartest guy. He's even smarter than Batman. He's, he's the smartest person, you know, forget Lex Luthor, forget Mr. Terrific, Michael Holt. The Riddler's the smartest person. And when he finally decides to stop playing games, because all along, the Riddler himself explains to Batman all along the reason he was doing this, you know, hey, here's a clue on a typewriter, giant typewriter or on a balloon or whatever, was for fun. He was having fun. He was toying with Batman. He's so far ahead of the game. He's He's been in Wayne Manor. He knew Batman was Bruce Wayne all along. He's been in Wayne Manor to watch Batman sleep, to watch Dick Grayson, to watch Jason Todd, to watch Tim Drake, to watch Damien. He's seen them all. He's He's done it all. Uh, and he's, and it's over. He's tired of, of messing around and he doesn't want to play the game anymore. And he just wants to do whatever the hell he wants to do. And he's, he's so smart and so far ahead of everybody that that, that's a literally what he can do because he's so formidable and so dangerous. He's, he's literally untouchable. Nobody can touch him. Not the Gotham City Police Department, not Batman, not, not other uh, supervillains, not the crime families of Gotham. No, he just, he literally walks out of Arkham Asylum, says, I'm going to go stay and live at this hotel. The banks of Gotham have this agreement that if he walks into a bank, just give him whatever he wants. He's that he's that dangerous, even to the point when Gordon calls the governor to say, hey, you know, I think I might need some help from the National Guard. I can't get any of my cops to even approach this guy or to even do surveillance on him or anything. The, again, the Riddler is so far ahead of everybody. The governor's like, my son's been missing for a week. He's been kidnapped and hangs up on Gordon. That's how far ahead the Riddler is. So what choice does Batman have? Uh, it's, it's maybe the one flaw that the Riddler shows here is that he's so far ahead. Um, but Batman himself says it. He's like, so your mistake, like you changed, like you decided to stop having the fun. And you just got tired of it and you just want to go out and live your life. You know, you changed, but you made the assumption that I would never change that, that, you know, there is a part of me, Batman acknowledges it early on in the story. Yeah, there's a part of me that, that has mercy, but you know, don't, don't expect that part to always be there necessarily. But the Riddler believes that it will, you know, the Riddler's like, you won't kill me. And that's, that's his one mistake. Uh, and when, at the end, when Batman, you know, again, it's not. It's not overt, but it seems to be what happened. Batman makes that decision. It's just such a like, hell yeah moment, you know, like hell yeah beyond Kite Man, Tom King, Kite Man, hell yeah. It's just such a fantastic moment. Um, and again, the Mitch Garrett's art throughout is so visceral uh, that I can't imagine any other artist doing the story. Like, Mitch's style is so perfect for this. Like I would be, I'll be shocked if this doesn't win awards. And it has me so curious for what comes next with these other one bad day. Like, do, are they all going to end with Batman saying, all right, you know, Mr. Freeze, you're done. And I'm sticking you in the microwave, you know? <laughs> and what about uh, Joker? <laughs> yeah. Two-Face, you know, whoever. Did they announce a one bad day, Joe? I don't know that they uh, did. I don't know if I they know, did. No, I don't know. I know, I know they did. They did. They did Roz. I know there's a uh, Mr. Freeze one coming. There's Two-Face. There's Penguin. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know that there was a Joker, but but anyway, um, yeah. I mean, this is just so good. I'm not. I don't want to spoil everything. There are so many great character moments. Uh, I didn't touch at all on the fact that we see the formative years of um, of Riddler. His real name's not Edward Nigma. Um, you know, we kind of understand his his trauma and why he is the way that he is. Um, but yeah, I mean, this was this was stunning. It was so good. 
like I cannot wait to sit down and read it again and really take my time um, going through it again. I, I've only had time to read it once so far. Uh, yeah. But yeah, w- more than a pick of the week. Like this is one of the best comics of the year for me. Yeah, no this doubt. was this is the definitive Riddler story. Uh, for, oh yeah, at least for, for me. Uh, now, uh, I should say that this the way this ends, <laughs> this has finality to it, so we can't see the Riddler anymore. If this is so, this this is a Riddler story that can't necessarily ever be in continuity because it ends with finality. Uh, uh, that was in fact. The point of the story, this was definitely one bad day for many people, but it was, it ended up certainly being one bad day for, for the Riddler himself. But, you know, the whole idea here of, uh, you know, Edward Nigma, you know, Ian and, and Enigma, literally, I mean, this guy named himself and he, as he, as Riddler himself says at the end of this narrative, he goes, uh, he, he, he basically said, riddles are fun, but I'm not. That was his final message to Batman. He basically turns, like you said, for all those years, he, you know, in his formative years, he was always, he was a very intelligent kid and he didn't like riddles when he was a kid uh, because riddles, you know, they, he, he was very good at memorization, very good at rogue memory, very good at just knowing the answers. Uh, as he said, he was on par with Lex Luthor on par, and but he always kept his intelligence in check. And there's even a poignant scene here where at one point he even ends up meeting his mother and he decides that... Uh, he could he could ask his mother any question because he didn't know about his mother. He didn't know about his past. His mother was could answer the question about where he came from. More questions about his past. The one riddle that that Ed, that Edward Nigma or that's not his real last name, but the one riddle that Edward himself could never answer were were where he came from. But before his mother could answer his questions, he. Uh, he ended his mother's life. And that's really interesting because he almost like he wants to, he wanted, he didn't, he didn't need the answers. He, and he, he turned, this is his evolution. He, he stopped being, he, this was, he was totally indifferent. This is the embodiment of evil in many ways, because you've heard that expression before that, you know, there's only thing, one thing worse than evil and that's indifference. This is a, this is a Riddler that is indifferent. He stops caring about anything, but he, but he, he's extremely intelligent and that makes him very powerful and he'll get whatever the hell he wants. Or he'll just, as he said to Batman, if, if you touch me, I will, I will eventually, I will kill the Robins. Maybe I'll kill Stephanie. I'll kill Cassie. I'll do whatever I have to do. I will find a way to kill and I'll kill anybody at random. This issue starts off with him killing a random citizen. The Joker kills a random citizen. And uh, just for no reason whatsoever, just because he can. And to make a point to Batman to get his attention. And as he said, terrorize the threats he makes, how he does it. He, you feel the terror and the horror and the power of the Riddler. And, and yet he's not an intimidating person. Batman is this intimidating, bat-like, human creature-looking bat. And yet... Riddler is the one you're terrified of as you're reading this story. This is Riddler with a brand new set of eyes. Uh, I mean, I'm seeing Riddler for very differently for the very first time. And kudos to Tom King. It's interesting that you mentioned that Mitch Garrard really was into this story and wanted to draw the Riddler. Uh, I almost got the impression that maybe Mitch Gar- I, I wonder if Mitch Garrard had any input into the story itself. He's not credited as being a writer on this. So I, I, all I can say is Tom King... You know, Tom King, I know he might have a reputation for writing dark tales, but goddamn, when they're this good, he can keep on writing these all he wants because I'll keep reading them. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be curious too. You know, the other thing that we mentioned, 
again, not overt, but he does appear to kill Riddler at the end. So is this going to be a situation where there's some backlash? Oh, Batman doesn't kill, blah, blah, blah. I mean, this clearly is, you know, a different uh, continuity, different version. It doesn't say black label necessarily, but, um, you know, it's clearly, you know, out of continuity in a way uh, or, you know, standalone story that doesn't need to tie into to anything else. So uh, I'll be curious. I, I hope this is, is received um, with an open mind because, um, you know, there's the, the other aspect of it, you know, Batman doesn't kill or whatever. And there's been various arguments about it, whether it's, you know, from the Zack Snyder movies or whatever, you know, especially the, the Superman. And I kind of buy into that, but Batman is not Superman. And Batman, if you go back and read a lot of his earliest comics from the golden age, he did kill people. You know, he was the, an avenging dark knight. So, um, Comics evolve over time, you know, based on society and what's going on in culture. So mm. while I, I would worry if we get to some point where, you know, Batman is Frank Castle and he's, you know, popping off jaywalkers, that's a little problematic. And in my mind, not necessarily true to who the character has been for the majority of his publishing history. Um, but, I, you know. Things out there in the real world are pretty dark as well, and as as we know, comics oftentimes mirror th- uh, things that are going on in our culture and our um, our society. So you know, things tend take a little bit of a darker turn, like they did in the '80s. You can kind of understand why. So uh, yeah, this was again a, a really fantastic book. So um, was good. Other titles uh, from DC that are coming out this week. Uh, I do know that there is a Scooby-Doo issue, which, you know, typically we don't cover, um, but there is uh, an issue of Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? coming out this week. Give me a second and I'll tell you the issue number. It's issue number 117. And then in terms of trade paperbacks, we have uh, the Teen Titans, Raven and Beast Boy, which is one YA uh, graphic novel, and then the Beast Boy Loves Raven, which is kind of the sequel to that. There's a box set uh, of hardcovers of those two books coming out. Those are by Cami Garcia. Uh, the aforementioned Wonder Woman Black and Gold, uh, limited color palette stories, that's getting a hardcover. We also have volume two of Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad's uh, Wonder Woman uh, run is in trade paperback. That's through a glass darkly. Uh, we've got the Swamp Thing Volume 2 Conduit trade paperback, which collects uh, the second part of Ram V's Swamp Thing storyline. Um, Robin and Batman hardcover is also out. That is the book that is illustrated by uh, Dustin Wynn and written by Jeff Lemire that we covered uh, earlier this year. It was a three-issue. Um, I think that one actually was labeled as Black Label, but um, if you're a fan of those two, uh, you'll definitely want to, and a fan of that series, you'll definitely want to pick that up. It was, it was basically a Robin origin story told through the, uh, kind of the eyes and perspective of, uh, of Dick Grayson. So those books are out from DC this week as well. Uh, don't forget to tune in, uh, to the audio only comic source for, uh, new comics Wednesday tomorrow. Those will be spoiler free. And then I should have some, uh, some other content coming out. Uh, I know I've been promising you guys the return of Daily Spawn. I promise it's still coming. Just struggling to uh, to find time to get that done. What, so, what issue are you on with your Daily Spawn? Uh, I don't. I don't. I honestly don't even remember anymore. I'm supposed to be up above a hundred. I think I'm 
around 60, somewhere in there. So uh, I'll definitely pick up where I left off. And when I do get it going, it's going to be multiple issues, multiple episodes a day. So don't know if we'll still finish it this year, but I am committed to finishing it, even if it goes into uh, to next year. So um, what about you? Anything to add? Uh, no, it's just, uh, you know, uh, kudos to Tom King, man. He impressed me again. I got to, uh, once again, I'm planting my foot in my mouth. Uh, when I think of how much I criticized that guy back during his Batman run, he's taking it about face. So, uh, no, it's uh, not, you know, again, I mean, DC is, I mean, there are good comics by DC. You know, I were, you and I were talking earlier that there's a little bit of, uh, continuity wonkiness with DC and what have you, but there are good comics to be had at DC. If uh, you just got to give them up, give them an opportunity. So, but yeah. Hey, don't forget, everybody, if you're listening on the audio only, head over to YouTube, do a search for Rocky's channel, Comic Space Boom, exclamation point. Subscribe, like this video, leave comments. You guys know what to do. Uh, ring that notification bell so you're sure to uh, know when uh, any new content comes out. Conversely, if you check us out on YouTube all the time and haven't subscribed to the Comic Source, just go to wherever you get your podcast, do a search for the Comic Source and subscribe so you don't miss out on any of our audio content. So as always, we appreciate you joining us. Be sure you go and pick up uh, Riddler, Batman Riddler, One Bad Day is very much worth your time. And that's going to do it for this episode. Appreciate you joining us always. We'll talk to you next time. Catch you guys later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.